right, hello. My mic's on. <laughs> Good day. Thank you, everyone, for coming by. Uh, tonight's Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Episode, what, we at now, like 47, I want to say this is? That's a lot. We're almost at 50. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so, I appreciate you coming by and listening to my tale. Uh, a couple things I can do real quick. Um, I received a package in the mail from a member today, or for a, from a community member. And I've been waiting on this to show up for a little while. Open that up, because I know what that is. He told me it was coming. Oh, wait, hold on. A little letter here. Uh, <clears throat> uh, this is a thank you for all the hours of entertainment you have provided during all this lockdown garbage <laughs> that has, in some cases, uh, in some cases, is still going on. Thanks for everything, Terry Griffiths. Terry, member of the community, uh, sent in a letter today, and he also sent in the new mystery bag. So this is what the little shop bottles are going to be going in moving forward. And uh, when someone spins the wheel and gets a draw on the mystery bag, it will come out of here. So he told me not to buy one. because This is actually what I was going to buy. <laughs> but he, uh, he said not to buy it because he was sending it in. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Terry. Um, also, uh, a gift from uh, two members today. Uh, received a uh, shot glass that says... Uh, when the DM smiles, it's already too late. And that was from Jim and Smashley. Uh, so, adequate. That will be, we'll be breaking that in probably, hopefully, tomorrow night. Um, yes, much classier than my brown paper bag. Although, you know, my ghetto bag is, you know, it's, it's not bad. I, it does its thing. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, but yes, today we're going to uh, jump into the story. Um, so I have maps. You're going to get to see a lot of drawings today of actual things that the characters went through. Uh, I tried to take pictures of them and set them up where you could see them on stream. And uh, I just couldn't get it to work right. Um, I kept putting them all. For some reason, Streamlabs, when I was pulling them in, was turning them horizontal. I guess that's landscape, whatever that is. And it, w it won't let me turn it back. It's normal in the file. And if I change it opposite in the file, it still puts it wrong way on here. I cannot get it to switch. Uh, so I'm going to have to fiddle with that. Hey, Bader. <laughs> First time to a live one. Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you all for hanging out with me. If you have a good time tonight or whenever you listen to this, please remember to click like. And if you're new here, please remember to subscribe. Okay, so uh, we are going to get right into the, the meat and potatoes today. This is a big episode. Mm, yes. Today, things happen. So um, where we last left off, our heroes had made a deal with Karina the Black Wind, a uh, very dark, uh, evil elf, uh, who had agreed, who has the only person that anyone knew, who has a spell that will send them into the dreamscape, uh, the dream world from which they're being attacked by the Emperor of Oramon. Um, they had uh, to go through one more of his dreams, and then the next day when they wake up, they are to... Um, go meet and go into the dreamscape that gives them seven days uh, to find the dream circlet in the dream and their links whatever the links are whatever he's created that's linking them to him uh, if they can pull that off in seven days he will no longer be able to use the circlet against him uh, nobody could to be honest uh, so that's their goal they went through one last dream where of course the emperor was showing all the horrible things he was going to do to all of them their loved ones and friends um 
if they didn't give him what he wanted, although they still, he won't tell them what that is, because if he tells them, it's harder for them to hide it. Um, if, he, if, you know, if, he, if he tells so he has to get them to admit that they'll give him access to what he needs. MT says, yeah, uh, saying hi before my crap internet legs me down behind. <laughs> Hello, MT. Sorry to hear about the internet, but I appreciate you coming by. <laughs> Hopefully it stays up and working for you. Um, so yes, so they went through that last dream, and as the dream ended, he took each of their hands, cut their palms, and sure enough, with a knife. And when, <laughs> when they all woke up, sure enough, they had a cut in their hand and it was bleeding. He was showing that he has now taken control of them enough that he can affect their physical forms he can affect their bodies. And if he doesn't get what he wants, eventually he'll just end up taking them over completely. Now, one way or another, he'll get it, but the longer they hold out, the more of them he'll gain control of. So, you know, it's that. Happy one year anniversary. Oh, it is your diamond. That is awesome. I didn't even notice that. Congrats, sir. Oh, check that out. MT and his little diamond going on. Uh, that's a, the diamond dice after the name is when someone has hit 12 months as a Draven's Dragon part of the membership program. So congrats to you, sir. That's phenomenal. Um, I tell you, we've got like, I want to say five or six now. Like you're, I think you're like five or six. There's not a whole lot of people that made it that long. So congrats to you, sir. All right. So um, that's kind of where we left off. Uh, everybody woke up, saw the cuts in their hand, and that's where we ended the day. So... They now have seven days to get what they need to take out, uh, to get it done out of him before uh, he re-enters the dream. And if he re-enters the dream while they're still in there, uh, technically there's no one protecting their bodies. He'll come in and he can have almost full control. So they're on a time limit. Um, so let's talk about that. Um... So the next day, or that day, uh, after, you know, Artemis throws a quick heal on both her and Mercy's little hand there, <clears throat> they stock up on whatever things they need, and they're escorted to the Mage Tower. Um, Draven stays behind to look after Seraph. Um, but Lucas escorts Artemis, and Ulrich is going with Mercy. I mean, they're traveling within Serenity, so I mean, they can have as many people as they want. But they're really just taking that. They don't want to draw too much attention. They just want to make it look like they're heading over there to say hi, or whatever the case may be. Because they, they're sure Ormond has to have spies. I mean, at this point, that's pretty much a given. Somebody in this kingdom is spying for Ormond, if not multiple, right? Um, so they're taken to the Mage Tower, which is a, a very, pretty large building. It's taller than any other building in Serenity. Um, it has grounds, like a its own walled wall around it, which is not meant more to keep people out, kind of is, but more to keep make sure that people don't accidentally stumble into a spell being cast. Because some spells they got to cast outside when practicing and throwing, so on like that. So um, last thing I want is just some young kid come running around the, the lake fishing and walk into a spell and fireballs. Not that good. You know, that reminds me of something. Very uh, odd. I mean, it's, it's a little aside, but it's something from a, an old old merge world piece of information. In Rafe Firemoon's castle, way back before the merge, he had a room that he trained in, and he had um, he would try. It was like spells and stuff were cast out that he could tr magic items. You weren't sure how they could work and such. They would try them out in there, 
And he and Thickaway Tricklebush, the Kender, were in there one day. And uh, they had something with a magic wand. And one of them uh, had a wand of wonder. And a wand of wonder is one of those wands that when you cast it, you roll the dice to see what happens. And Thickaway's like, I'm going to try the wand. Because he's shooting... Ray Fireman's like shooting arrows or something. He's like, I'm going to practice too. And he casts it. And what he rolls is he turns the wall at the end of the room to flesh. Just big pink flesh. And both Rafe's like, oh God. He's like, ew, gross. And tries to turn it back and instead cast a fireball. And just burnt the entire wall of flesh down. And the whole castle smelled like burnt flesh for weeks. <laughs> just an aside. I'd forgotten all about that till this moment. till I talked about... The Mage Tower. But anyways, <laughs> it was very gross. But it was, it was funny too. So, um, I thought about that in a decade. Uh, so, they, uh, they're taken in there. They chill around the basement for a little, or the ground floor a little bit until uh, Thakar shows up to escort them, uh, which he does, and escorts them up into one of the higher rooms. Uh, they've been here and they've been to different rooms. They've never had a complete tour of the Mage Tower. They've not asked for one, nor have they been offered it's not the kind of thing the mages give out, even to allies of these of these caliber. Um, but they're taken to, to upstairs to a a large round room. He's assured that this room, uh, once they come inside, will be sealed and no one will be allowed in or out except for he and Karina uh, and Lucas and Ulrich, who at the time are going to have to leave occasionally to get food, drinks, and sleep and whatever. Uh, but each one of them has a backup who will be coming to take their place. Going to shift out. For Artemis, it's going to be Tevin. And for uh, Mercy, it's going to be Quan. So someone, they'll come in and switch out. So there's somebody always here. Because while they're not there, they can't be woken up, per se. So they, they want to make sure their bodies are protected. And granted, they're protected by an entire mage tower. Better safe than sorry kind of thing. Uh, so when they enter into this room... They see Karina's in there already preparing the spell. Of course, there's things drawn on the floor and sigils and whatever. Um, but what they do notice are, are two woven rugs, they look like. And they're laid um, in such a way that uh, they're kind of touching. So it's like a figure eight. Um, they're round, by the way. And they're basically dream catchers. They're just, they look just like a dream catcher would, if you know what that dream catcher is. Um, and they're told to... Artemis and Mercy, so are you ready? And like, yeah. So they, they're to lay down, kind of with their heads not touching, but at the same point, so their feet are facing away from each other. Um, and while they're laying down, they're given some last-minute instructions. Um, again, they have seven days to break the link. They can break the link, then he won't be able to use the um, nightmare circlet on them anymore. If they can break the nightmare circlet in the dream, he won't be able to use it anymore on anybody. So that there's kind of a 50-50 there, right? If they don't break it, but they break the link, he can use it on other people. But if, he, if they break it and not their link, somebody else could use it on them. He just hand it to Lomar or his sidekick, whatever. I mean, they so getting both things destroyed in the dream is, is the primary uh, goals. They want to get both of those done. Um, Karina says, it's been a long time since she's cast a spell, but she's still quite familiar with it. 
Gives them the same warnings as before. Information on how to travel. It's already been arranged at Darsh and Dandy far, far, far to the south. Uh, they're both now in um, Kronayar. Um, they are laying in Darsh's home. And he's laying on the bed. Dandy's laying next to him. This little tiny kender next to the huge mentor in the bed. She makes comments about biggest bed she's ever seen and things of that nature. Um, Garrig, his, uh, Darsh's minotaur cleric, uh, is going to cast a sleep spell on them. That was something they were told. They have to be asleep when Karina casts the spell in order for them to be pulled over. Um, I've given a little bit more of information. Things to be prepared for, things to watch out for, so on and so forth. After they're given all the information, they're, they're given a chance to ask a couple questions, but when they're finally ready to go, they are. They want to get on this so they can get back as soon as they can. So, Garrig has already put Darsh and Dandy to sleep. They, there's like it, It's timed. like They know approximately when. They've been asleep for probably 30, 40 minutes before uh, Artemis and Mercy are put unconscious by Thakar. Thakar's going to put them down to sleep while Karina casts the spell that basically pulls their <clears throat> sleep state out of their physical body. Um, and that's kind of what happens. Um, they're laying there, and at first, you know, they, unlike normal sleep, because of the preparations that have been made, they, they can still feel like they're laying down. They're asleep, but they're just laying there, and they can't move. They can basically hear echoes and such. This is the same with Darsh and Dandy, who are, at this point, they're just asleep. You know, they could be dreaming or whatever. Um, but as Karina's casting the spell, they come to realize that they're in their body and they can't move as well. Like they're, they're, they're feeling the, uh, the a moment of being trapped, if you will. <clears throat> and there's a quick moment of panic in there, but there's not much you can do. But then, of course, as is all good spells, there's a loud pop. <laughs> um, and Mercy and Artemis uh, feel like it getting loose. And they can, you know, in that moment of panic, they're able to break out and they literally sit up. And of course, they look around, and no one's looking at them. They're looking down. They look down, and they're, they're still sitting on their bodies. And they stand up real quick, and they realize that they can pass through them. That they are, in fact, not of a physical nature. At that same moment, when Dandy and Darsh pop, they have a slightly different feeling. They're literally being ripped across space and time. They're being pulled to Karina's spell, and it's you know kind of like that whole classic uh, space warp factor thing when things just go fly by and gravity and stuff. It just it's just a brief second or two of it, but it's enough to give like, whoo, and suddenly they're standing in that same room as well. The four of them can see each other, they can speak to each other, they can hear what the people in the room are saying, but just very, very faintly, they can just barely hear it. The closer they get to their own bodies, the louder they can hear it, because technically they're still hearing the outside world through their ears, if that makes sense. So the further they get from their body, the less they can hear. So as they travel away from this place, they won't be able to hear anybody talking to them. Um, because they are, in fact, going to have to travel through the uh, dreamscape. So they're all kind of just chilling there for a moment. They can talk to each other just fine. They can't talk to anybody else, though, because their mouth's not moving. But they, they're talking to each other. They, you know, it's kind of just a brief moment of, it's good to see you all, you know. Artemis and Darsh, and, you know, or Mercy and Artemis have not seen Dandy in quite a while. And haven't seen Darsh in almost even longer. Um... So, you know, it's, it's been almost a year or so since then. So they're happy to see them. Um, let's see. Mm, where are we at? Here we go. So, um, 
Again, they've been told that the dreamscape can look like anything. There's no windows in this room, but they're told that they can move by remembering. So they, you know, they've discussed this. They're all going to speak about standing, um, talk about standing in front of the realm gate, the one that's here closest to Serenity. Um, they all concentrate on that, and sure enough, they feel like themselves, they're not walking, they're not moving, but it's like they're flying and things are zipping by. And then sure enough, the tree, they're standing in front of the realm gate. Um, they can literally move with thought as long as it's to a place that they know. Um, if one of the persons doesn't know but is being physically held by someone who does, they can pull them with them. That's where Darsh and Mercy are going to come in here. Each of them have been to Oramon. So each of them should be able to go there. Now where they are right now is not exactly the dreamscape. They're dreaming, but they're not in the dreamscape. The dreamscape is its own plane. They're, they're asleep and they're outside of their bodies. They're in a spirit form. So outside it just looks like a, a dull version of everything, like a lightish gray-blue. There's a lot of colors are missing. Um, but it still feels relatively like the regular world. Entering through the portal was what's going to enter them into the dreamscape. Um, and they're given a command word to be able to do that. And they do. Uh, so they pull out the key. You know, Mercy reaches in to, to pull out the key that would open it up. Because they're told they will have everything that they would normally have while they're awake. Um, when they, she pulls it out, the key's very different. It's much larger than it was. And it appears to be made of space. When I say space, it's black with the different stars and the cosmic lights. And looking at it, literally, it's like space is moving through it. It's definitely a larger key than she expected. It also looks much heavier, but it feels even lighter. Because uh, the keys themselves are bigger than just a regular key. They're, they're a good-sized key, but they're not huge. She pulls this key out. It's big, and they're all like, is that the key? She's like, it's supposed to be. Sure enough, she puts it in, uses the command word that Karina said, which is the uh, ancient elven name for the dreamscape. I uh, don't have a word for it, so... We're just going to say that they know what it is. <laughs> Whatever. And they, uh, the realm gate opens just like it normally would. And it's just as colorful as it is. Even though everything else around them is dull and almost gray-like, the swirlingness of the, the portal itself is just as bright as normal. Because it's in all places at once. Even in this spirit zone, if you will. They uh, kind of take hands and they go through. Uh, let's see. Where are we at? Okay. Right. So they're going to be in places they can see. So uh, Dandy will be holding hands with Darsh. Artemis will be holding hands with Mercy. Because uh, both Mercy and Darsh know what Oramon looks like. They can picture it. They can go there. Um, and they agree. You know, they've, they, they've been told that it's probably going to be defended. So they are going to imagine themselves on the road outside the city. That's what the, they all ca they both came in from that southern entrance way back in the day when they were trying to sneak in there with uh, Quan, and uh, that's the what they're going to picture is that southern entrance, a place that they know together. They don't want to picture the arena or any of those places because then they could be inside and in a trap itself. So. Um, they pass through and they walk inside the portal. And now they're in the dreamscape. And just like walking through the portal, normally, it's the same sensation. Just that brief moment of movement. And then now they're standing on the other side. And, and immediately they recognize that they're in serenity. It's like they stepped back out of the portal in the exact same spot they went into it. But the difference is the sky is that purple swirling thing. There's no star, sun, or moon, or anything like that. That purple swirling that's been in the sky of all of their dreams, which is a staple of the, of the dreamscape. 
Um, there is no time, technically, cosmic time. There's time. Like they, they, there's seven day things still happens because the real world's still happening outside of here. Um, but it, no sun moon type kind of thing. Um, they talk a couple minutes. They prepare themselves. They get ready to go to Oramon. Mercy and Darsh concentrate on the same location. Artemis and Dandy are holding their hands. The land moves around you, rushing by quickly. Both familiar and unfamiliar lands pass around you before finally stopping at a place both Darsh and Mercy recognize. Before you in the distance, you see the great walls of the city of Oramon. And while the walls are familiar, the rest of the scene before you does not. The walls now appear to be at the base of a giant steep mountain. High, high above you at its top is a great keep, the largest you've ever seen. Large and small winged creatures fly around its high towers, and you have no doubt that the Emperor is somewhere inside. Now they were warned that things could be different, and they, they sh show up here and they get to talking. What's our plan of attack? The city gates are in front of them. Do they try to go through the gates? Do they try to climb up? And they, they get closer to the gates, and it's not just a mountain, it's almost straight up. It's like a pillar, and the gates are wrapped around the bottom of it, and it goes up super crazy high. They thought about pulling out the carpet of flying, but the big and little flying things up there do not look very welcoming. And while they're not coming down to get them, flying up there, those things are moving much faster than they can on the carpet. And they feel that they might, uh, that might not be safe. Plus, they don't know what happens if they fall. You know, if they die in here, they die. Falling, they could die. You don't know, you know, if, if all goes well in a dream, you wake up before you land. If you've ever heard that before, if you don't wake up before you land, you'll die in your, in your dream and you die in real life. Same kind of thought process here. They don't want that. Artemis sure as heck doesn't want to die in a dream of falling. She already hates, she hates heights in all situations. Um, so they decide that they're going to go and check the gates and see what that is. The gates they approach are just as large as normal. Darsh reaches out and prepares to try to pull on one as hard as he can to see if he can open it because they're huge doors. He heaves his back into it, and it opens up almost so quickly he nearly falls back on his butt. Uh, swings open lightly, like it's on a, like there's 50 minotaurs pulling on it. And inside is an entrance going into a dark cave. Without anything else to do, they realize, okay, this is our first, we've got to go through here, and we've got to find our way up this mountain to the top. And that's really what this whole next section of the adventure is going to be, them making it to the top. Um, this was the dungeon of this adventure. Uh, you'll notice that there's a lot of, most of my adventures will cycle, uh, will cycle around some type of one or two places that have that. Um, in the last adventure, they're trying to save Michael. There was all of Thorman. Thorman was a dungeon itself, all the Dwarven kingdom. And then there was the whole dungeon of trying to make it into where the Dracolich was when they fought him at the end. Um, so, I mean, that's one form of dungeon. Um, in, when they were trying to get the stones back. There was multiple. Find, going through a dungeon to get to Michael to find out he had a gem was a good example. So there's a lot of dungeon-themed stuff. You may remember the ancient e evil Egyptian elven pyramid they had to go through. Again, there's a dungeon. So I do like to have a lot of the classic dungeons of Dungeons & Dragons in here. Um, so what they entered into was a cavern maze. So it's a maze. And it's all caverns. So it doesn't look like realistic. They had to find their way through. Now, the room itself, the cavern itself has 20 rooms. And making it to room 19 or 20 would allow them to move upstairs. 
So they had to make their way through the through the map of Seven Dragon Turtle, something like that. Uh, so they, they had to make it through this cavern maze. Um, and there were many rooms. They didn't have to go through all of them. I created 20 rooms, each with some type of fight or some type of puzzle or clue. I will say this one was very combat heavy. Um, the, the 20 rooms, there was some form of fighting something in almost every room. Uh, so I have a picture. I'll show you the map here as best I can. So this was it. They, uh, they enter from the bottom, right below number nine there. And so uh, they had to make their way through here, trying to find the way up. Holding that up there a little bit more for you guys. I'll hold it just for a second for those of you guys who may not get a long chance to look at it. So as you can see, there are 20 different rooms. This is also, as a DM, an easy way for me to pre-write things in a room. I can write down what's in that room, what's it built like, what's it look like, are there any traps, what are the monsters they have to fight. And I'll give you an example. So I pre-make these sheets. I do them in a binder. I like it a lot easier. I will do this. So for second edition, I will have... Uh, Orvon Cape, room one, there's a displacer in there. Displacer is a beast. Displacer beast is a thing to fight. Room is rocky with, uh, I call them stalags, because I can't remember stalag types and stalagmites. Uh, yeah, you guys warn, you tell, every time we talk about it, you guys tell me and I always forget. I'm horrible at that. And then uh, displacer beast, there's two of them. Then their basic information they would need to know. And then I, you can see where I've been tracking their hit points. Right? So that's where I'm, uh, displacer beast one and two. So I will have this prepared for every room. So when I get there, I don't have to pull out my monster manual and look up every monster. I have the basic important stuff here, and I usually write on there what page in the monster manual it is. So if I need to pull up further reference, I can do that. I can just quickly flip to that page. So this, there are rooms that they never went through. But I can tell which rooms they did by looking at which room the hit points. So room one was a displacer. Room two was a chimera. But I never scribbled that out. I've never changed the hit points. So I know they didn't go through that room. So I don't have to remember the exact maze they took. But it's a way for me of kind of keeping an eye on how all this stuff works. So um, I could say that they did fight the Displacer Beast. Obviously, they, they beat them. Uh, then they moved on and they had to fight a Roper. I can't remember if we've done a Roper in this previous adventures. But a Roper looks like the ground stalaggy thingy. And... Uh, except sometimes a little bigger, and then it has like really long, sticky uh, uh, tentacles that can fling across the room and they grab you and pull you into a big mouth. Um, not pleasant. And they had to fight a couple of those. Um, there was a room with a catablepus. They did not have to fight the catablepus. That room was a massive, steamy, swampy cavern. And again, they're in dreams, so it's easy for me to make the room bigger inside than it is outside, if you know what I mean. You know, I can, inside the room, the rules don't always have to exist. Uh, this, this, there's tons of the stalags on up and down for the roper. Um, there was a room of the manticore, also had a pit trap. They did not go in that one. They did fight an otiug, which is a room will appear a large pool of dirty water. This is a really nasty modder that lives in filth and sewage and things. Uh, the water averaged between 2 feet and 10 feet deep. Again, tentacles pulling you under the water. Um... We see they went into room eight, which was room is not high. Uh, sorry, is high but not large. Spider webs fill the room. Small spiders will skitter about. So there weren't any major spiders. There were a couple. The problem is literally it's full of poisonous spiders. So just regular sized ones, which for Darsh, you'll remember, not a good room. That's his phobia with spiders. Um, then they go into room 10, which was this cavern is high with large columns going up. 
Uh, there's stairs at the end of them. See, this is where they, I tricked them. This is where they thought they were going upstairs. Instead, half of the statues that looked like gargoyles on the top of the columns were gargoyles, came down, and they had to fight gargoyles. The stairs led nowhere to a door that you opened up, and it was just wall. It was a trick. Uh, room 11 had a falling trap in it. They did not go in there. Room 12 had a dragon. Did not have that. 13 had a gibbering mouther. Again, a long, swampy waterway. Two to six feet deep. Gibbering mouther. Mouths and eyes and such all over. It's like a mound kind of thing. Uh, could mess with your sanity and stuff. And it had some bonuses being in the dreamscape. Uh, hopefully this isn't boring you guys too much. But I'm giving you an idea of what some of these basic comics were. The next rooms uh, on the next floor are going to be in a lot more detail. Uh, but this was just making it through. And I'll be honest, I don't remember the individual fights themselves at this point. Because there were none of these were boss fights. Uh, but they did have to fight some things. They fought a basilisk. That, I remember, was a tough fight for them. Because a basilisk, if you if it looks at you, it's, kind of, it's got the Gorgon ability. It can turn you to stone. So they have to try to fight the thing without technically getting looked at by it or looking at it. Um, and its abilities are a little bit different. It has to just see you. So they had to fight it without it getting a look uh, like visual on them for a period of time. It's the way I run basilisks. So they have to look at you. They roll. And if you don't have, if you can't roll a number to get out of the way or find something to hide behind, after a period, after like one round, you turn to stone. Um, so room 19 and room 20. Um, those are those last two rooms I showed you. And they were connected by a secret passageway, which I always draw secret passageways up there at the top here with the little dotty lines. That's how I know it's a secret passageway, not a regular passageway. Connecting 19 and 20. That was the only secret passageway in this entire section of the dungeon. Uh, one room contains the stairs up to the next level. The other room has a fake stairs, which is actually a pit trap. You fall in it, it spikes and stuff underneath. Secret passageway two, the correct room will depend on the time it takes them to find out. So, had to find the room. So every so often, I would flip a coin and it would be the other room. And it was how many rounds and how much time was going by. So as they're making their way through the dungeon, I didn't know which one it was going to be in. I had an egg timer, and it was sitting there, a little little sand thing. When I flipped it over, flipped the coin. They didn't know what I was doing. They just knew that they had to be in a hurry. Because <laughs> they were afraid, you know, bad stuff was going to happen. Because a lot of times when I flick the egg timer up, that's my way of saying, you're taking too long. I'm going to make something bad happen when the sand runs out. <laughs> this situation, I had something method to the madness. So... They go into the room, and literally the rooms are identical, but one's the real stairs going up, one ends up being a trap. Um, it does not tell me here which one they... They obviously they found the right one eventually, um, but I want to say the pit trap, Dandy found it. So that's kind of how that map worked. Um, and then they moved to the second floor. Now the second floor has a little bit more um, stuff to it. So we're going to talk about that. Um, explain how this works. So, s level two is a series of rooms, again, that lead to another set of stairs going up. Um, when they walk into room one, where's room one? There it is. They walk into room one, like they're coming up from the bottom, right? What they see is a massive bottomless pit. Massive. No bottom. Now you think about that. They just came up some stairs. Took them 10-15 minutes. Here's this massive bottomless pit. That's the thing of the dreamscape. You know what I mean? It's like where technically there should be the rooms they were in under there. Instead it's a massive bottomless pit. 
there are flat tiles that are, what were they? Two feet by two feet square. Dar should be the only one to have a hard time fitting on it, but he can pull it off. And they are just floating there. You can see space between them. There's nothing holding them up. They are just floating there. Um, they test these things out, sure enough. Holding on to Dandy, Darsh basically tosses her on one. You know, ties a rope around her, so if it falls, he can pull her up. They, they, they're prepared for this. Sure enough, she's able to stand on it. She jumps up and down on it as hard as she can. The thing does not move. Um, but she would have done that. But as soon as she steps on the tile, it begins to slide in a direction. And several of the other ones slide as well, and a couple fall somewhere else. So now there are less tiles, and Dandy has moved away from them. They have to make a determination. Do they? Does she try to come back? If she steps on another tile, what's going to happen? <clears throat> does that mean her tile will fall as well? The tiles that fell were further away, but they don't, you know, they don't want to get lose all their tiles in their way to get across. The thought was to pull out the magic carpet. The magic carpet would not fly here. They did try that. I'm a turd. So. At one point, they were like, well, maybe. Since, other than the Darsh, if they were really careful, two of them might be able to stand on one. So Mercy and Artemis, again, tying ropes around themselves while Darsh is standing there, because he could pull them both up quite easily. They decide to hop on one of the tiles together. one Because the tiles aren't that far from the starting place, right? Like you're, It's a stone thing, and they can just almost step over to it. They do that, and the tile immediately falls. Darsh has to grab them and pull them up. Because uh, sure enough, I had written down, talls are solid and will support any weight but only one living person. So if two people stand on the tile, doesn't matter what they are. It could be two dandies, it'll fall. One Darsh would not make it fall. So they can't stand on the same one. It dawns on me that telling you these puzzles and things that I do mean if I ever run live D&D on here, I can't use these. Because <laughs> I've already told you how they work. Um, so basically what happens is every tick, every certain amount of time, the tiles begin to slide and some more will fall. A tile will not fall as long as you're standing on it. On the other side of this room are two landings where you could get across because they're trying to get across to that with what appears to be a doorway. Um, what happens is this room, it was purely designed not to hurt them. It was designed to split them up. Um, depending on who did what with the tiles and their roles, I didn't care who, who went which way. But the goal was to cause them to split up. Um, and it ended up being Artemis and Dandy on one side. Mercy and Darsh on the other. Mercy and Darsh, very unhappy about this. Those are the warriors, and they're leaving their two squishies over there. Um, but they were on different sides with different doorways, which meant they are both going to have to go through their own trials and tribulations to hopefully meet their way back uh, on the next floor. It was the goal. So, each one had to choose. There's path one and there's path two. So, that was room one. We split them up. Uh, nobody ends up dying there. Because they weren't intended. 
So room two, they arrive. Again, this room is massive, bottomless pit. But different sized rocks are floating. Different levels. Some are like boulders. They're jagged. None of them are like flat. But there's just different big sized rocks. Almost like, a, like an asteroid field, if you would. Right? Up and down. And they can see that across the room on the other corner... Um, on the other corner is another landing with a doorway. Uh, this was Artemis and Dandy's room, I believe. Let me check to be sure. No, I don't think so. Let me check here. Um, I should have written that down. I know one room that it was certain people. So I'm just checking to be sure. Um, ah, there it is. Okay. Uh, got it. Okay. So yes, this was the dandy Artemis room. Um, and their puzzle was to try to find a way across. Um, and it, again, this isn't as much puzzle room. Some of these might be a little puzzling. They were designed more to be obstacle courses. Is what the, this level of the dungeon was. Uh, they were having to use things like strength and dexterity, which for some of these characters are things that they not didn't have to use that often. Dandy using dexterity was nothing. She doesn't do a lot of strength checks. You know, Artemis neither has to do either of those. She's all wisdom and, and intelligence and such. Whereas Darsh rolling dexterity checks is almost laughable. So, um, you know, these are, the, these are the situations that they're in dealing with stuff. So when they arrive in that room too, there's these things here. The rocks were floating above. So they're like, okay, well, two people on a rock is a bad idea. It didn't work good in the last one. Um, Artemis ties a rope around herself. Because she's physically the same strength as Dandy, but Dandy's more agile and can climb easier. So Artemis is kind of like holding on the edge of the doorway they came in with a rope tied around her. So that way if Dandy falls, she can try to brace herself and just hold enough for Dandy to climb up quickly. Artemis climbing up, well, agile, not as good. So, Dandy goes and jumps and grabs one of these big rocks. Because it's kind of, this one's kind of shaped like, a, uh, like a, uh, a top. You know what I mean? It's a spinning top, where it's, or, or even a, um, a radish, where it's thinner and pointier on the bottom, but a bit more rounded and flat on top. She goes and jumps and grabs on the thing. But as soon as she does, the rock starts to float in the direction she was. Now, they had 50 feet of rope. They don't, Dandy just reaches down, grabs a knife, and cuts it. Because the last thing she wants is to pull Artemis in. That was her fear. She goes, this rock's not going down, but it's moving away. And if two of us end up drop, causing it to drop again, no one's here to save us if Artemis gets pulled off and the weight pulls them both down. So Dandy cuts the rope. So now she's on here, and with momentum, it goes a certain distance. And then it hits another rock, and that rock starts going. And these things, as the rocks are hitting each other... Things just start moving around. And not in a predetermined path. Literally, these things, it's almost like there's no gravity. Like, they don't go up or down, but when they're getting hit on their level, their, whatever direction they're being hit from, that's, they just keep on going till they hit another solid area, wall or something, and bounce around. So, they had to learn to use momentum um, and the direction the rocks were going to try to get across. Um, Dandy, being the super agile one, stayed on there the longest, letting Artemis get on, because she figured, worst case scenario, she can get Artemis across, she can try to climb across the roof or the wall, because if anybody could pull that off, it would be Dandy. 
Um, but it took them a while because there was a lot of rolling involved in this one. Um, and again, luckily, Darsh and Mercy did not have it because Darsh getting this one would have been funny. But for Artemis, she had a negative to every roll because clearly she's over a bottomless pit and the uh, side effect of being afraid of heights does affect you in these situations, even in your dreams. Uh, but it did take a little while to get across, um, but they finally did succeed in doing so. Um, now, we're going to continue with their side. We'll continue talking about what they did first. So walking, making it to the pedestal on the side, they're like, whew, that was really sucky. Let's hope we don't have to climb on more things. That's two rooms in a row with floating things. They don't, they're tired of floating things, especially Artemis, afraid of heights. Uh, they're in a tunnel which twists and turns a large amount of difference or distance until it brings them to room three. So this room is inclined up a hill. All right, so imagine that you're, you're, you're just, you walk into this room and it, it, you know, you walk into a, imagine if you walk into a door, into a room, and you walk in the middle of that wall. And in front of you, it's just inclined, like a ramp kind of going up there. Um, it goes up and appears to turn around a wall to the left. Um, now, coming down this incline is rushing water. Now, here at the bottom, if you, when you're looking in the doorway, you're in a little thing, you see there's a space between you and the incline. So you can jump across the space, but the water's going there and down that space. And the water's moving relatively quickly. They have to find a way to get up there against the rushing water. And the ground doesn't look flat, which means it's going to be dark, dark, bleh, deeper in some areas. So, as they're beginning this room, they can also hear thunder. So they're like, okay, is that real thunder? How's thunder going to affect us? Is there a storm in here? Who knows? It's the dreamscape. Is thunder going to cause like a torrent of rain? Do we have to be prepared for that? Once again, Dandy takes the lead. And this is a situation where Dandy really took leadership role in these two things because these were a little bit more fitting for her. Um, but she basically runs and jumps across um, and it starts fighting with the water. Now, when I say it's an incline, it's not completely smooth. It's not like they're trying to walk up marble or anything. Um, it's almost like natural rock. And that's why I'm saying parts of it's deeper because the rocks aren't even. And Dandy, of course, is the shortest of all of them. So areas that wouldn't be as, would be knee high for, you know, Darshan then, which is almost over her head. Um, and that also means she's going to have a harder time with the current. But water is coming down and they keep hearing the weird boom of thunder while they're doing that. Well, she gets across and she starts making her way up. And she realizes that every so often she finds a spot that's relatively shallow. Um, and so digging out a hammer and pitten, which is something that my characters learned a very long time ago to always have with them. It's the same thing rock climbers would use to hammer a hard nail in and then hook a chain or a hook to it to support them, or rope. Uh, she starts hammering one in to the ground, mosquito, and uh, connects her rope to it so that she can help pull Artemis up there, who's not as agile as she is. And now Artemis hops across, and she's in her robes. So at this point, she's already got her robes tied up around her waist. So she's got, she's got pants on her, but you know what I mean? She's trying to pull up there. She's in heavier clothing where Dandy's more used to this. And she's struggling and slipping. And while Dandy's using, having to do strength checks every time Artemis falls, she has to use a strength check to see, can she hold her feet and keep Artemis from falling? 
So this is where Dandy's having to use those strength checks that she did. Again, it's a very obstacle course themed section of the dungeon. So they finally get up to the top of it and they're like, thank God, we're tired of that. They come around the left-hand side where the water's coming from and they realize that there's a whole nother section like that. The water is nowhere near as deep. The issue are the large boulders that are falling at the top and rolling down the water, splashing into a wall of water next to them and disappearing through it. Because I'm a jerk. And now they had another situation. So now they had to not only be dexterous, Luckily, the water here didn't appear to have any deeper spots, but they still had to fight against the current while at the same time trying to time the dropping of the rocks. Uh, how many pittance do characters usually carry? Uh, it's going to depend on their situation. These guys, on their person, in their little backpack and such, probably four, maybe five. Darsh being the size he is may have a couple extra. Um, them having a chest of holding, they've probably got a chest of them down there. You know, stacks of them on a shelf inside the chest of holding. But on their person, normally three or four. Um, for any of like the, the warrior characters, Artemis and Dandy will probably have a couple. You know? Uh, what helps them is Artemis and Dandy have the chest of holding, which does appear to still work here. And so they were able to get some supplies, because Artemis is always the one that carries the chest of holding. Um, unless stated otherwise. Um, so they managed to, to... So now they've got to do these rock things. Now, it's not as steep, so they don't think that. There is no hole they have to jump over. The water's running through this wall of water, but when they touch their hand against the wall of water, it's like almost like imagine a, a shower with just water running over it. Like there's a solid wall there behind it, but the rocks go through it like it's not even there. So they can't go through it. But the rocks are falling in a pattern, and I give a little bit of time... Um, for them to figure out, okay, if they asked, yes, there is a pattern. They start watching it, and it's kind of dandy that's doing that. And she's like, that one, that one, left, right, figuring out how much time they have. And almost in a video game concept, if you imagine you've got a, uh, almost like a, a, a Donkey Kong situation where you have to jump, move, jump, move, timing how much time you have between each one. Um, and then once she figures it out, then she has to make the appropriate rolls to successfully pull it off. If she does... She knows the pattern. She can then yell it down to Artemis, who has to do the exact same thing, but it'll be much more difficult for her. Danny does figure out very quickly that the uh, boulders... Well, boulders, I mean, when I say boulders, uh, they are probably the size of... Like big, like this. They're not like they're not like massive fill the whole tunnel. They were coming down on the left or the right, and they stayed on their side. They weren't going all crazy. They would fall and roll down their side. So it was a matter of, of figuring out when they would fall. Um, at one point in this, Artemis does get hit. She slips and falls, and a rock rolls over her foot, breaking her foot. Um, she has to keep going with another negative till she, because there were spots they could get to that Dandy had found would be a safe spot, and she had to put it, she had to cast healing on her foot. But a rock literally crushed her foot. Um, and she had a big negative to get up to that next safe spot. When she did, she heals herself, Dandy again goes to the next spot, so on and so forth. They would study that spot. But Artemis did take a big crunch there. But they finally make it up to the top of this room, and there's a doorway leading into room the next room. But before we talk about that, we're going to go back to Mercy and Darsh. So Mercy and Darsh, after that first room, unhappy, want to do what they can to get back as, you know, as quickly as they can with Artemis and Dandy because instinctually they fear they will, be, they will die without them. 
or Dandy will kill them. One or the other. Although Dandy did a very good job. So they make their way uh, around a long tunnel, uh, which is going up a little bit, until they enter into a very large room. Yes. So they walk out onto like a, a pedestal, right? If you will, or a, 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 like a, let me see that, um, a stage, if you will, off the entrance of this tunnel. So they can step out and they're on a little dais. There's enough room for them to stand. Uh, this room is large with a full river of lava flowing from east to west. Black rocks flow in the lava going that same direction. Um, before, on the, before the other, it's like a wall of lava and the river of lava is going there. When the rocks hit the other wall of lava, the rocks explode. And the new rocks are coming out of the wall of lava. Um, they are kind of bobbing as they're going along in the lava, which is concerning, especially for a very large hairy gentleman who is not happy about the thought of putting his weight on one of these lava bobbing rocks. But across the room of the lava on the other side is another one of these dioceses in a doorway. They've got to get over there somehow. And neither of them are good jumpers or dexterous people. Makes me so happy. Um, uh, there are also occasionally little sizzle pops of lava, which are concerns. Um, and they realize that they have to get across somehow. And the rocks are moving, uh, sorry, the lava's going east to west, yes. And the rocks are as well. Um, in my mind, I kind of pictured this like a big game of Frogger. If you understand the concept, the video game Frogger. You're trying to get across to a place and there's logs and stuff. So everything's flowing in one direction, different size rocks. And it's jumping from rock to rock to try to get across. So they're constantly trying to jump towards because it's coming out one wall. They're trying to jump towards the wall things are coming from. So every time they jump on a rock, that rock is moving. So they're trying to keep moving forward to get new rocks. And sometimes they would have to jump backwards or jump towards their own entrance to get to a rock before they could start going that way. Because it's not just trying to get across the room. It's also trying to stay at the top of the room, if you will, if you're looking at the room sideways. Like if they come in this way, and the lava's going this way. As they're jumping across, the rocks are flowing down. So they're trying to get as high as top as they can away from the wall of lava where the rocks blow up. At the same time, trying to get this direction to where the dice is on this side. So they're jumping from rock to rock. Sometimes there'd be no rock. They'd have to jump back. And that was the kicker for, for them. There was no real pattern that they could find. So they would have to jump. They would have very small periods of time to make a decision. And so... I was saying, you go at the same time, or you're going to go separately. They said separately. Thank goodness it was easier on me. But I said, okay, I will tell you a roll, and you have to tell me, do you want to go forward or back? So I'll say small forward, big back. There was a pattern to it, different size rocks. And uh, as one's going by, Darsh puts his foot out and nervously puts his foot down, and it holds his weight. Even though it's a small rock that totally should have sunk in lava, let's be honest, rocks don't float on lava really anyways, right? Um... Although, the added issue to this is when they stepped on the rocks, they could hear the leather or rubber of their beats or boots starting to sizzle because the rocks were very hot. They were in lava. So that added a little bit of extra hurry for them because uh, if they didn't, the bottom of their shoes would melt and they'd be trying to do this with bare feet, which would give them even bigger negatives because I'm that kind of guy. So, Darsh and Mercy. Mercy went first. 
Uh, Darcy's like, you sure you don't want me to go first? Like, I'm the big dude. If I fall in, one of these rocks falls in, it's going to fall in under me. Wouldn't it be better to know that? And Mercy's like, no, because I am a little bit lighter than you, so I have a better... If there is something out there that changes halfway across, I might have a bit better chance of um, reacting to it. So this was a bit of a struggle for them, because this was a very dexterous room. Uh, they're both very smart, and they're both very strategically mined. So making the decisions, I gave them an edge there. Uh, you know, because again, Dandy would have had a huge edge here, of course. Um, but trying to plot it in a very quickly a reaction to action, they were both really good at that, because they, they have to do that with leading their warriors and so on and so forth, and practicing battles. That type of strategy thing is something both of them would have to know somewhat. So having that ability to make that quick decision is something that I was giving them a plus on. Well, to help offset some of the negatives of their physical prowess. Because let's be honest. <laughs> These guys are wearing armor. Ashley says, What happens if you accidentally kill a party member asking for a friend? That's a great question. It is going to completely depend on the situation. On a regular day in the regular world, is there ways to come back from the dead? Yes. Is it cheap? No. Um, if a party member dies uh, and you can save their body, you know, in this situation they melt in lava, not much could be done. But if you are able to save the body and you can get it to a cleric capable of bringing someone back from the dead, which not just any cleric can do, uh, you have a shot of bringing them back. Although very often uh, you'll be given a quest of some kind in order to pay for it. Uh, sometimes you have to go complete the quest. Like, I can bring them back, but to do that, I'm going to need this thing. You'll have to go get that and bring it back, and I can use it to bring them back to dead. Or the other way around, I'll bring them back, but then you have to promise you and your friend here are going to go do this thing for me. So somebody wakes up from the dead to realize that not only were they brought back, which is awesome, but now they have a debt. So there's different situations there. Now, if it's someplace like in the sands or here in the dreamscape, death is permanent. There always needs to be that risk. My goal is never... I never aim to kill anybody. Is it possible? Yes. I never aim for them to, for them to fail. Unless it's a story beat. Anybody who's ever played a video game knows that there's something called a scripted death or a scripted failure. It's where there's no way to successfully pass this. You're supposed to fail to progress the story. That will never kill somebody. I will make you fail on purpose to move the story occasionally. I don't like to do it that often. I think it gets used way too much in a lot of D&D games and even video games. Um, but a couple times I have done that. You know, Michael fighting Shastra. He had to get, you know, to break the staff. He had to lose that fight. Technically, they both did. That had to happen, you know. Uh, didn't kill him, but it took him out for a little while. So very often there's a way to bring people back. If you die, it's either by accident or your own failure because you just didn't do something you should have, or you rolled a one. <laughs> That's always funny. But there are ways to bring you back. I will just make you pay for it for a while. So, they successfully make it across this room. Now, they take some damage. There were several situations where um, slight missteps called them to slip a bit, a foot hits lava a little bit, <laughs> or, or you know, they, they do something... Silly, and it causes a splash of lava. They lost a few hit points. Nothing major. And that's the one thing. Anything that happens to them, like scarring, if they destroy their boots, Darsh's boots have 
you know, charging. If they get destroyed, they're not destroyed in the regular world. They can't go back, but their stuff's still fine. How handy, huh? Now, if their stuff is destroyed in the real world, will it be destroyed here? Especially if they're not there to know it. We didn't come across that, but it's something I've thought of very often after this. Had, during this situation, somebody pulled off their magic ring of protection off their finger, would it still be on their finger in the dream? They don't know any different. It's their dream. Maybe. In the future, we'll find out. But it's something I've had in the back of my mind for a while. I'd like to find a way to, to make a definitive answer there. But they finally make it across the lava. It was not easy. And of the three rooms we've looked at, it's the one that took the most amount of time. Um, but they managed to get across from rock to rock, and they're okay. They then go through the uh, exit on the other side, continuing down another long pathway, which leads them into room number five. <gasps> not room number five. Yes, room number five. So, room number five. This room is full of steam. They can hear steam blowing from somewhere, and visibility is almost impossible. This, you walk in, and uh, it, immediately it's like walking through water. You can breathe. I mean, it's just that humid and damp that you're immediately wet. You're not drowning, but you can breathe. But it might be a little hard to breathe a little bit, you know, because it's just that much steam. And it is hot. Not kill you hot, but uncomfortable hot. Uh, especially if you're a large man and very shaggy. Interestingly enough, every room that Darsh went into was perfectly fine for him to walk into fitting-wise. Because the dreamscape does adjust to that. Unless it's specifically designed not to. Like if they're walking in a room that was supposed to be, everybody had to crawl, that would be different. But a regular room, the room adjusts to you. Okay. So, here's the concept of this room. This room is a big square room, and somewhere in this room is an exit. But visibility is so low, you can't see. Here's, here's where I made this room a challenge. So, the walls are covered in uh, crystal-like formations that are razor-sharp enough to cut through thick leather and possibly bone. So if you touch the wall, you will cut yourself. A lot. So you can't feel your way around the wall. Vents shoot steam up at different intervals. Although there's a pattern. And if you happen to be standing on a vent when that happens, you take serious damage. Also, uh, within the room, which has an uneven floor, by the way. I specifically wrote that down. Uh, were also sharp crystalline formations that come out of the ground. Sometimes different heights. Sometimes you walk into them face first. May only be a high as your knee. But again, incredibly sharp. Next to no visibility. So, these guys, their object, they had to somehow traverse this room without standing on a vent when it got hot and finding an exit without touching any of the walls and not running into anything sharp in the room. I had a layout of it, and that I don't have with me because I drew it on a separate piece of paper. Um, but <clears throat> I do have it. I uh, did have that. So as they were going through, they had to figure out which way they were going. And their thoughts were, okay, Mercy or Darsh, who should go first? Um, Darsh decided in this situation he was going to go first. As uncomfortable as he is, 
he has a little more experience being in the water, in wet areas, and fighting in storms, and handling on the boat. So the water and stuff, as uncomfortable was, he was actually more used to that. Where Mercy's in her armor, and she's got her helm on, and it's just water running down, and she can't see anything. Not something... She, both of them have... In 2nd edition, there's an ability called blind fighting. Uh, which, I don't know if it's in 5th yet, I haven't come across it. But basically, it allows you to fight without being able to see anything without negatives. You lose a lot of your pluses. But basically, you're Jediing it, kind of, based on sounds, thoughts, and knowledge of combat. Uh, as long as you're not fighting an animal. Because an animal won't have strategic combat, and then that's different. A little look behind the curtain there. So... And hopefully, again, you guys are enjoying this. Today is a today. So far, has been, this section of it's been a lot more of the technical side of D and D, which I don't do a lot with you guys. I mostly keep it the story. Um, but this was after this has all been pretty much story for them, right? There's very little combat except for you know Mercy and the whatever they had to fight in the mines and uh, Artemis and the evil clerics and, and that kind of dandy in the uh, where things Darsh and his. Uh, Blackhorn that he had to fight. There was sections where they had some fighting, but a lot of it was just role-playing. So I wanted to give them an opportunity to get to use those things that majority of the time dominate D&D. And that is your combat roles, your ability checks, those things you have to do to fight and survive. So I wanted to give the first half with as little of that as possible. There had to be some. It's their lives. But the second half, they got to you jump back in and use a bunch of that, those abilities and skills that they've been practicing and earning and learning all this time, uh, and not so much role-playing and being their characters. Which they really enjoyed that section of it, being their characters and building Serenity or wherever they were. So they had to make their way through the room. So um, they tied ropes around each other themselves so they would stay close, so they wouldn't get lost in there, which was smart. These guys, I expected that. Um, Darsh has his shield and he has his sword instead of poking with his sword he decided he was going to go shield first because Darsh's shield is really big and if you'll remember it's made of dragon scale from way back in the early days of the adventure it was a custom made shield that he still has it was incredibly resistant to a lot of the sharp things being magical the sharp stuff didn't cut into it at all so he ha kept it along the floor and his hands behind it and moving forward, if it bumped something, he stopped. It was Mercy's job to listen for hissing vents because sure enough, there was a hissing noise before a vent would pop. You had one turn to react. You had to roll a dice dexterity to get out of the way of the steam vent because the whole floor is all venting. It's like walking on metal grates. If you hear the hiss, Mercy's like, roll. Then they had to roll the dice and if they made their dexterity check, they got out of the way before the steam blew. Because the vents were big enough, with them being as close as they were staying, it would have hit both of them. If one made it out, one didn't, there's a chance the second person who didn't make it out would get hit, depending on whether or not the first person hit obstacle number two. Because obstacle number two is you've got to quickly dodge, there's a better chance you're going to run into one of the sharp things. Which happened a couple times. So by the time these guys got through the lava room and this room... They were less than half hit points. They'd had this snot beat out of them by all of the physical sharp things and the lava rocks. And they came out of this physically way worse than the other. Even though Artemis did break her foot, she's the person who can heal her foot. You know, that hurt really bad for five minutes and then it went away completely, you know. Kind of anyway. Uh Jim says, I'm really interested in this. I know we're playing, but I'm uh, but I'm sure other people like this. Uh, the way you're telling it adds 
more to how this works if someone wanted to know more about which is true and I, I, I want to use this as a way of highlighting some of the skills and abilities these people have that they don't always get to use um, so I do that sometimes I'll design a boss or a fight or a dungeon or something around things that they have an ability of but they've never used one of them knows leatherworking somehow leatherworking is important in this dungeon it's an odd thing but I like to kind of figure it not obviously too obvious because why would you know luckily somebody there had leatherworking I mean you got to make it somewhat any of these four things would work if one person has one of them it works so they finally make it to the other side um, and it was very very uncomfortable um and they come into room six at the same time that Dandy and Artemis come into room six. Both paths exit into this room. Um, let me see. What do I have here? Let me read it here. So the room itself is relatively... Uh, imagine a square... Well, you know, I can just show it to you. Now I can show you what this dungeon looked like because we're in the last room. So this is what this dungeon looked like. Kind of, okay? So this is the stairs where they first came up. They got separated on these two paths. So Dandy and uh, Artemis went down here. This is the floaty rock room, right? Where they had to go on a corner like this. Then they had to come down here and they had to make their way up the rocks, back up the other side into room six. Darsh and Mercy had to come in over here, make it across the lava, come through here, make it through the steam venti room, up into room six. So this is what room six has looked like. Hopefully hopefully that made sense. I'm trying to look at it here. Um, but six, here it is. It's kind of like a weird, goofy Pac-Man or like a helmet with a visor spot right there. But that's important. That's the shape of the room is important. Because seven, that's the stairs. That's where they're trying to get... I'd say it's F. It's F. That's stairs. That's how they get out. I don't know why I put an F there. I'm sure I have it written down somewhere. <laughs> we'll know in a minute when I finally come across F. Um, so, let's see. Um, both paths exit in this room. There's a lever on each side which opens the room to the other path. So when they come in, there's like a, like a, 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 a not force field slash glass wall. Pull the lever, open, opens the door on the other side. So... Let me explain this to you again. Let me say this again. So when they get in, they pull it, the lever. The other side's door unlocks on the outside. And same with them. So they couldn't go into room six. Darsh and Mercy couldn't go into that room until the other guys pulled the lever on their side, which opened their door. And when they get there, they pull their lever down. Nothing happens. It actually opens the other door. So if everything failed, they have to find a way to go all the way back around. But F could be finished. I, I, I'm, I'm not seeing it yet. <laughs> but as they enter into this room, they have to make it across. Uh, let's see. Uh, this room has obelisks throughout it. Obelisks. So eh, obelisks can mean different things. Uh, for me, an obelisk is normally going to be some type of square, triangle, base. And then it kind of comes up smooth, usually thins out when it gets to the top, has some type of point on it. Small obelisk, giant obelisk, many obelisks. Um, uh, this room has obelisks spread throughout it. Uh, they are constantly firing arrows at regular intervals. Sometimes out of all... So imagine the obelisk has a hole at the top on each side. Arrows are flying... It's, how would that even happen? There's nothing inside. The, the thing's this wide. How are arrows this long coming out of it? 
That's how it works. It's magic. Dreamscape. It's all crazy. So arrows are going out. The obelisks are shooting them sometimes in every direction, some directions, so on and so forth. Um, the walls, and, and, and those arrows have acid tips on them, poison tips. I should mention that. Poison tip arrows. Uh, they figured that out. Uh, then the walls are also firing arrows, except these ones are on uh, regular arrows. Um, let's see. So there's a pattern to find their way through this. Um, they're coming at it from different different parts of the floor, remember. So they're having to try to get to each other in the middle. And that little niche at the top, there's no arrows in there. So if they can make it to that little spot, they're okay. Um, seemed fine and dandy. Not a problem. The arrows are going... Uh, it's again dandy that starts working out the pattern. Um, and to be honest with you, Mercy was really... Uh, uh, the young lady who played Dandy and Mercy was really good at that stuff. She was really good at figuring out patterns when I put them down. Uh, not that Artemis wasn't, but she was just extra good at it. She was very handy at that. So she found a lot of uh, paths that way. And um, she finds a path and she they decide she's going to try it first. Not only is she the best one at figuring this out because of dexterity and all that, she's also the smallest. Uh, there's spots where she could go under the arrows. And I have to point that, that the arrows um, aren't always at the same height. The obelisks have different heights. She can't just crawl underneath them. I'm way sneakier than that. But Dandy is making her way through this, following her interval, and she's being very careful to stay within the pattern that she figured out. She did a very good job of figuring out the pattern. A phenomenal job. But what she didn't do is remember that even though there's a pattern, she still has to check for traps. So, sure enough, the floor has pressure plates every so often that when you step on it, it changes the pattern of the arrows. So, partway through, she triggers one, and now the arrows are all different, and she's standing, and of course, where she's standing, arrows are now coming. She has to dodge out of the way. This is how they found out Poison Arrow, because Dandy got poisoned. Artemis can't heal her of poison at a range. Dandy has to find a way either back or find a way through. And she only has so many rounds. She decides in this situation to play it safe and go back. She struggles, but she gets back there. Artemis is able to heal her. But now they have to start all over again. And the pattern's different. It's very frustrating. So now her job was to try to figure out the pattern, and then check for traps. Sure enough, as she's going through, the tiles had different color sequences. There's some type of pattern on the tile that she was able to figure out which ones triggered it. And so once she figured that out, the other ones could start figuring their pass out and just avoid those as well. Yeah, this room took one of the longest of all of these because there were so many different things combined to make it a challenge. It was meant to be challenging. But I did let them all be together, so as long as Artemis didn't get shot a whole bunch, she could heal them. Um... Let's see here. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Oh, yeah. So it does enter... Yeah, it does, F isn't listed, so I guess F is... For, oh, you know what? S and F, start and finish. That wasn't stairs, it was start. <laughs> you were totally right about the finish. Start and finish, not stairs. Okay, sorry. I, sometimes I forget what I do. But they make it through there, a little worse for wear, and I want to remind you that Artemis still has her spell limitations. She can't sleep and regain her spells. She only has so many healing spells. She does have her magical staff of healing. Uh, whether or not 
the charges she because the magical staff has charges you expel charges out of it to heal people when it runs out of charges it doesn't work anymore unless you can find someone who can charge it she's high enough level she can charge it but she can't do it on the fly she it has to be outside of the adventure in a certain amount of time to do it um she has that but would the charges disappear from the real one we find out later so they make it to there and sure enough there are stairs going upstairs there's no stairs going downstairs it's all upstairs uh, let me see. Let me just refreshing here a second. Okay. So on this now they've made it up to the next level. This level a little bit different. They come up the stairs into a single room. Alright? And after this the single room has what would appear to be four doors, I think. Let me see here. Um, yes. Let me grab it here. Um, no, I guess it. Okay. So, in this room, there are... It's a square room. They come up the stairs through the middle, spiral stairs. They come up in the top. They're in a square room. There is a large mirror on each of the walls in the middle. And let's see here. Okay. Gotcha. So this one's just a warning. Hello, Badger. Um, as they get up there, there are four mirrors. And they have to figure out what they're going to do. Do they, okay, the mirror's a trap. Dandy has to search for traps. So Dandy makes her way up to the mirror. She doesn't find any traps. Of course, she can't check for magical traps. She doesn't find any physical traps. But she also does not find her reflection, which weirds her out a little bit. She has no reflection in this mirror. She then goes back and tells her friends about this. Dandy checks all four of them. The second one she finds, as she gets close to it, begins to swirl a little bit. She gets backs away from it, doesn't get close enough. But the third and fourth one don't do anything, just like the first one didn't. So Artemis goes to check the first door for magical one, magical traps. The whole place is magical, but she wanted to give it a shot. As she approaches the first door, it begins to swirl. She backs out. They quickly realize that each one has is obviously linked to a mirror. And... How do they get through? Well, let's find out. So, they, uh, it's going to seem odd, but follow me on this. They have to decide which mirror they want to address first, because each one of them has a mirror that shows their reflection. And they have to decide which mirror do they want to go through. First, they don't know if they can all go through them or not, but they're going to try. Let's find out. So they decide, uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't have which order. They have to do all four of them anyways, so it doesn't matter. Because once they go inside each room and they're done in the room, there's a lever they have to pull once all four rooms are levered. Uh, another set of uh, stairs, that basically the stairs that go down will twist and go up, and now there's stairs going up. So 
They have to do them all. I don't remember the order they did them in. It was relative. They got to pick. I didn't care. Um, but I have all the room. So when they got to the mirror of their choice, that person had to break the mirror to go through it. Uh, do you like anime or Star Wars? Neither, actually, oddly enough. <laughs> Not a fan of either. I mean, original Star Wars, though. Okay, when I was a kid, I don't get into anime. I like Star Trek a little better. Well, it's named after the show. I kind of have to. So, when they get to the mirror, the mirrors are all the same size. They break the mirror, it becomes a, a, a place they can walk through, a doorway. Um, and the person who breaks the mirror, your mirror, you have to go first. So in Dandy's room, they basically break Dandy's mirror and they step through. And they find themselves in the main hall of New Hope. New Light Hope, which is where the Knights of the Light are. Now, nobody's been there except Dandy. Dandy gets into the room, into the main hall, which she's seen while she was there, and they get attacked, and they have to fight. Michael, Lyman, which is her captain of her ship, One-Eye, um, the dwarf who runs, uh, Weber, the dwarf who runs the thing, and... Uh, Lord Gunther, the, the head of the of the Knights of the Light. Basically, they get in there, and once they go inside, those people are on across the room, they draw weapons, and they have to fight those people. Basically, in each room, you had to fight the people you love, is kind of the concept. And the people you fought had the skills and abilities of the people you, you brought that information in with you, right? Um, now, luckily, none of them are undead, so Michael doesn't go all crazy undeady, but uh, they have to fight them. Um, let's see... So they've Dandy's room. That was Dandy's room. In Darsh's room, uh, it, they walk out onto that. They're on the deck of the Chimera, his ship. And he has to fight Lyra, his wife, Jorn, his sidekick, Rokar, his cousin, Sasha, Rokar's wife, Doram, the captain of his ship, and Nathaniel, who's his pilot slash lookout slash prince of the Elven Kingdom. Uh, Artemis's room is the main chapel of her temple. It's her favorite place in the world. Uh, have to fight Draven, Miasha, Tevin, Lucas, Kelvin, and Weston. And in Mercy's room, looks like the main hall of Serenity Keep. Have to fight Ulrich and all of the knights and her father. So, imagine the concept there, right? So, Dandy's people are very... You've got Michael and his uncle. Michael's kind of agile. He's a fighter, so is his uncle. One-Eye's a rogue. Weber, who's a dwarf undead hunter, he's straight up a fighter. Uh, Lyman, who's also a fighter. Uh, it's mostly fighters in that group. Darsh's group is an interesting combo because Nathaniel, incredibly dexterous. Dorham is a fighter. Sasha and Rokar fighter. Jorn, fight. Lyra, his wife, also a fighter. So again, very combat heavy in these rooms. You get to Artemis's room, you got Draven. Not only is he a hardcore fighter, he's got some magical abilities. Miasha, Tevin, Kelvin. That's three casters in this room, all clerics. Um, the same spells as Artemis. Uh, well, Miasha's is, and so is Tevin. And then you got Weston, who's a paladin, using paladin abilities of goodness against them. And then in Mercy's room, it's all of her knights, right? So she's fighting all of her knights who have certain skills. One of them's ranged, one of them is more melee fighter, Quan's almost basically a rogue, he's more of a monk. Um, you've got Devin using the pole arm, you've got, uh, Lars and Owen, who one of them is an archer, the other one is an animal trainer, so he's got his dogs that are attacking. So it was just different combat styles based on this. And then um, 
when this finally happened, I'm sorry, it wasn't stairs that went up. I know, I'm so sorry, I read that wrong. After they flipped the, they finished the last room and flipped the kind of switch that's past the people they have to fight, they go back into the main room and where the stair were, it was, is now one big mirror that they have to go through. Um, and this one, um, there's no reflection. It's just swirling. So they have to break the mirror and go through it, and they find themselves in the main hall of Nylat's Citadel, which is the big flying castle that they fought him in, where the thing crashed, and technically they all pretty much died. And in here, they have to fight Shadow... And, and forgive me, because... I, some of this was just for my own entertainment. They had to fight Shadowheart, Willow, Zarin, and Fig. That was the four other companions that were their allies. They also have to fight Tobias, their wizard friend, Moog, the gully dwarf, and Old Poot. Which I've been waiting for a chance to put Old Poot into the story. If you don't remember who Old Poot is, way back in these guys' very first adventure... Old Poot gets murdered in an alley. They show up too late, and they end up in this little mystery thing uh, where Poot and his companions uh, had been gone searching for a, tre a dragon's treasure and a whole thing. Uh, they, they still have a picture of Old Poot and his uh, seven other companions. There were eight of them, too. Uh, and they th kind of thought that was ominous, that one last companion was they, they got to meet the one of the last two companions that were alive. But Old Poot showed up. Uh, and Poot was a warrior. I mean, that's what he did. That's, they don't know how good he was, but since they don't know, they don't know how bad he was. So he's pretty good. Uh, so they had to fight all their friends, Moog, Tobias, who's a wizard, because I want to cast her in there, and Poot. And fighting Moog was the hard one. Like, they had a hard time, because Moog was useless, right? You're literally, you're fighting someone who can't barely move, can barely lift his own weapon, and you have to kill him. Um... But after they defeat uh, all of them, stairs appear, which then take them up to the next level. Uh, so that level was all about fighting the ones they love and having to, because all of them at one point or another, what if, you know, Mercy's like, what if something's, what if Draven was evil and I had to fight him? They've all had those thoughts about some of their people. What if my knights did a thing? Or what if Artemis is like, what if her knights turned against her? Because it's things we've talked about. It had popped up in road trips. Because when we're running road trips, we ask questions. They ask questions about characters. We do that kind of stuff. We used to take trips all the time. Um, and so we would just do some of the conversing and adding to the history of it. So uh, I know a lot of those things popped up. Well, imagine if I had to fight so-and-so. Oh, imagine if my characters had to fight so-and-so. And, -so. and I, that always kind of sat in the back of my head. I'm like, all right, I'm going to make you do it. So... This, they make it to the next floor. Uh, this floor is not the last floor. There's still another floor after this one. This floor has a theme as well. Each one of these floors has had a theme. This is a big dungeon. This took us three or four sessions, like eight-hour sessions to get through all this. Because uh, the very first level with all the fights in the maze, the combats took a long time. But that was a big chunk of experience I wanted them to be able to get as well. Since most of the early stuff they did was just me giving experience for role-playing well, there wasn't huge experience lumps rolling through. And by this point in our, in our careers, experience points are, ju are justifiable experience. That's how I give out experience. Which basically means at the end of the adventure, you go up half a level. The next adventure, 
you get your you get a level. So everybody's leveling at approximately the same speed. Um, and they didn't care. My characters, my, my players didn't care. They didn't want to level too quickly because they were afraid that if they got too high level, I'd make them retire them. So they were not in a hurry to level up. They wanted they enjoyed their characters the way they were. Level four. So level four is where I'm going to have the most amount of pictures to show you guys. Because each one of these is a puzzle. I wanted to throw a puzzle dungeon in because they hated puzzles. They, they did not, Sometimes they would figure them out quick. Sometimes it would take them forever and I'd have to help. Uh, these guys, not that good at puzzles. Uh, but there's a different puzzles, different things in each room. So... I don't have an overall drawing of this room, I don't think. Do I? Oh, I do, yes. Yes, I do. So this is the room. Let me pull back a little bit. Okay. S start. That's where they came up, right? They came up right there. So, I mean, I hold it up here a little bit longer while I'm talking about it. Um, when they enter into this room, um, there's a large central... Well, they, the large, they enter into the large central chamber. There are nine identical doors circle the room. Each has a keyhole. One large door on the south, on the south end, uh, will have the symbol of Pandora on it. That's, that's this one down here. The south end. This door, so there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Tenth room, that one has, the door has a sigil of uh, Pandora on it. In the center of the room is a round dais uh, where uh, there is slots for things, if you understand what I'm talking about. There's a space to put things. Um, and there are nine slots, right? Yes, there are nine slots. If I remember correctly. Maybe it's ten. There's slots. So, none of these doors, they have a key to open any of these doors. right? They don't have a door to do any of that. So they check all the doors, check for traps. Dandy sees that she can pick them. She can't. They're magical doors, of course. She can't pick the locks, can't open them up. Darsh tries kicking a door open using his big old manly mentor strength, unable to make the move. Clearly, they realize they have to figure something out. So they start searching this room. If there's slots to be filled, then the assumption is that at least one of the things that fills them has to be in here. And so they're searching the room. Um, there is, in fact, a hidden alcove on one of the walls that was illusioned and could be found by either searching for magic or searching for secret doors. Uh, it takes them a little while to find it, but once they do, it is an idol of a cat. Kind of stand like thin, you know, with like a long neck, like a black, almost like a pharaoh kind of head on it. Stands about that tall. Now they walk over to the di central dais and realize they could put this in any door they like. Just because I have them numbered, they're not numbered there. The dais, they can place it on the, the, the whole alcove matching a doorway and that door will open. All the keys are universal. All the all of the, the statues are. But once you put them in, they don't come back out again. Once you put one in, they lock into place and a little compartment opens underneath and a key is there. You can take and open up that door that you've put the dice, uh, the cat in front of. So they could do the rooms in any order they wanted. They didn't know it was on the other side, so it didn't really help them. The only one, there was no 
slot for that door 10 with the symbol of Pandora on it. Um, so I'll be honest, again, I don't remember what order they did them in, so we're going to go across them in order. Um, because it doesn't matter. So again, each of these rooms is a puzzle-based room. Kind of, basically. Um, this is a very large room. The floor is a massive pool of acid. There are stone dioceses around the room at different locations and heights. So imagine like a, a very smooth pedestal going up to a flat square on the top. Different heights, different locations throughout this room. The heights and the locations of this room. See a little tiny nine? There's a little tiny nine down here. I want to point that out. Okay. Just so that you know there's one little one there. So, um, thin beams, ropes, and steps lead to each of them. This is a very dexterous kind of room. Dexterous room. Uh, so as you can imagine, Dandy does a lot of this. But, um, let's see. Thin beams, ropes, steps. Okay. When they first come in the room... Okay, when they first come into the room, there's a lever on the wall. When they first walk in there. I should pull that out again. So when they first come out on their little diet, this is where they come in, up up here. Okay? And see that little, uh, little nooch up here? This doesn't exist until they pull the lever that's in between here. They pull this, the door slams closed. And then over here, this opens up to reveal uh, nine cat paw idols. Okay, so it's literally like a, a statue, like a cat paw, kind of sitting up. Let me know if anybody catches on to a theme here. So, uh, uh, there are nine of them. And, counting, they realize there are nine dioceses. Dandy decides to go and check one out. So she climbs to the closest dais, and when she gets there, she finds that the dais uh, has a in the middle of it, a nooch where one of those things would fit. She's like, okay, cool. And then she goes back and she's trying to, and you're looking at them all and they, and they ask me, are they all identical? And I said, they're all an identical shape. And they said, cool. And that's all that they asked me. So she took one. She can't carry it there relatively large. She puts it in her backpack and goes climbing to the first thing and sets it down in the little spot and it just falls over. Doesn't do anything. So then she's looking at it. She's like, okay, um, is there any markings down in there? I'm like, no, no markings. The, all, all the statues were physically the same. The bottom of it is like a, it's got like a, like a star kind of thing sitting in the bottom that'll fit into the slot. But when she goes, does it fit in there? I'm like, yeah, it fits perfectly. She goes, okay, I set it back in again. I said it falls over. She kept trying spinning it, thinking it had to be facing a different direction. It didn't work. She was getting frustrated. And then somebody in the party asks, what's the statue made out of? And I'm like, oh, they're all made out of completely different materials. There's a gold one, a copper one, a brass one, an iron one, a silver one, a bronze one, a platinum one, a titanium one, and a steel one. Of course, Dandy, even though she, they're all hearing this, Dandy goes, 
what am I standing on? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you are standing on a... I know, Bobby. It was very cool. I'm like, you're standing on a copper dais. So at that point, it was a matter of getting the right statue into the right hole. And yes, I see you, Bubby. You're a good point. Um, so getting the right one into the right hole. And uh, at the as well, they you know she, she's having to do very dexterous rolls. She's having to do rolls to get to each one. And many of these things were much harder to get to. So uh, she did have that challenge. Uh, but after a little while, uh, let me see here. Um, you placed. Oh yes, the other thing they had to be placed in a specific order, uh, which is another thing. Each time they placed one in the wrong order, uh, the acid rises a little bit, or one of the ladders or beams or ropes falls into the acid and disappears. So they had to figure out the order of them. And um, on the floor of the very starting area, uh, after looking around a bit for clues, um, they find out that there are tiles on the floor, but they're color-coded. When they look at it, it matches the shape of the room. And so the different tiles are different colors and they have numbers scratched on them. So basically they had to find that key on the ground to figure out which order to do them in. Uh, it took them a while to search for that too, as the acid was getting hot. Because their dais that they first come in on is a little ways over. The lava keeps getting up and that door does not open. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot of do this right or die kind of in this one. But they managed to successfully pull that one off and they left. Uh, oh, wait, let me see. Let me read that correctly. I'm going to tell you all this stuff here. Um, ba, 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 ba. Under the tile, when you picked up that color tile, the number was written on the bottom of it. That's what it was. So when they find the tiles, they find they're loose. They pick up a copper tile, and there's a number. They, that's how they found out the order that they had to go in. Uh, once the ninth idol was correctly placed, um, right behind it, a hidden space pops open, showing another one of the cat statues from the original room, and the exit out of the room opens. Dandy then has to make her way back from the ninth one, which, remember, I said is this little tiny one, way down here at the bottom. Very small little dice, and it was the hardest one to get to. Very By this point, they'd lost a bunch of things to get over there, so she's having to be very sneaky and careful and dexterous, but she manages to to get them all in the right order, that's the last one. When she does, the little door opens there. She gets a cat. she got to make her way back. I, I'm not going to lie. I really messed, messed with them in these ones. The, the puzzle stuff, some of the puzzles they got really quick. Some of them they did not. Let's see. All right. So, they walk into... They, they go back out. They put the cat... Again, this is how it happens every time. They put a cat in a in a slot, a door opens. Again, I don't remember which order. They had to do all of them, so I'm going to go through them in order. Um, so they go into room two, which is much like a room two would look like. Room two, very easy to see. As you can see, not complicated. This is how they came in. I'll show that to you again in a minute. So this is a smaller room, and in it are several organ-like instruments at several different locations. That's what that middle thing, okay? Each has several piano-like keys or levers. Now, they have to figure out what keys they have to play in what order. Obviously, it's, that's, they, 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 I didn't have to explain it. They knew really quick what they were going to have to do. So they start looking for clues. All over the walls are pictures of cat heads. Very, um, 
what's what's what are the cave drawings? What are those things called? People or hieroglyphics? That's not really hieroglyphics, not cave drawings. Very hieroglyphic looking cats. They all look to be the same, but they're in different spots on the wall. Um, so all across the walls are pictures of cat heads and paws. Um, so I actually had a handout of what those look like that I don't have any longer, unfortunately. Um, but the patterns on the wall, um, one of the, the young lady who plays Artemis and Darsh, uh, is a musician by trade, music school, all that kind of stuff. Designed this room a little bit for her specifically, just to give her some fun. Um, I went up to another friend of mine who knows about music and I took them like, it, I don't know what you call it, like a, a sequence of notes that I wanted. Like I could play, I played it for them and I'm like, I need to know the keys for these notes. Like how they would appear on a musical graph. I need to know the, the first nine. And, uh, she figured it out for me, wrote them down. That's the pattern I made them, but I mixed it in with a bunch of other designs on there. Uh, they had to find the right sequence in order for it to make sense. There were other symbols that represented cl treble clefs and things uh, that they had to figure out the pattern of which was the right pattern of notes to play. And then if they play them, they were successful. Um, if the wrong notes are played, you must start all over again and poison gas starts to release from the room uh, in faster intervals. By the way, the door closed. Uh, automatically when they were when they walked in the room like always happens in all these rooms i should point that out when they go in the room the door closes behind them okay so they had to figure out the notes and such so that was that room same type of thing once they played the right ones a little door opens they get their next cat statue and the door leaving the room leaves um interestingly enough uh the notes, the, the key, the musical sequence that they played was the guitar solo that Brandon Lee's character plays in the movie The Crow on the roof midway through the movie. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Crow. I always wanted to work something in there. And uh, once she hummed them in her head, she knew exactly what it was because I played it all the time. Uh, but she, uh, it, it was just kind of a, a thing for her to give her a, a little musical puzzle to play with. And at the same time, I got to work a little crow thing in there. Just, just for me. Uh, but that's where that musical sequence was. Um, they get the statue. They go out once again. They open the door. Hello, Terry. 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 Terry, 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 Terry. Hey, Terry, check this out. Ha, 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 ha. This arrived today. I got it. Thank you very much. I read your letter at the beginning of the stream. I wasn't sure if you were going to be here today or not. Uh, but I did get the mystery bag. I opened it up at the beginning of the stream. Uh, for tomorrow's stream, the Bevs will be inside of it. Maybe someone will be lucky enough to make me draw from it. Maybe. And then I also got this. Shot, another shot glass to use. Which I found very fitting. But thank you very much for sending that, Terry. I really, really appreciated that. Uh, I look forward to being forced to drink nasty things from it. Gross. <laughs> All right. So, room number three. Uh, this is a medium-sized room. It is very, very loud. Um, let me see. Thousands of arrows are going from si shooting from one wall to the other. Just constant stream 
of air, more like crossbow bolts, but super strong, going right through, popping through at all different, just rows from left to right. It is not possible to get through these arrows without getting shot because it's just row after row after row of them. Dandy could not make it through it. To get to the other side of the room, they can see past all these arrows on the other side of the room is a little table with the next cat statue just sitting there. So they've got to get across this room. Um, again, impossible to make it through the arrows alive. So they, again, are looking around and they find that there are tiles on the floor. The whole floor is tiled. All the tiles are about one and a half foot square. So we're looking like you know, one and a half foot square. Big enough for a foot, if you will. This is the goal. Um, and they're all numbered. Now, the very first row of tiles, there are no arrows shooting over it. So, basically, what happens is they have to figure out how to get across this room. There are numbers going from 1 through 8 all over the floors. Same numbers showing up sometimes in the same row. You know, it's not like there's only 9 squares. There's plenty of squares. They have to figure out how to get across this room. Took them a little bit, but after mathing it out... Let me find it here. Um, okay. Let's see. Let me grab it here. Got it. Yes, okay. So, concept is, they have to find, and yes, all of the, they, very quickly Dandy is able to tell that all of the tiles are pressure plates. Every single one of them. Very carefully, this, everybody stands back. Darsh takes his sword, pokes one. Nothing happens. <laughs> he pushes it down. It, it presses only a very small amount. Like, click, 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 click. It's like pressing a button that doesn't do anything. He tries hitting a bunch of them. Nothing happens. So they have to figure their way across. Uh, it took them a little bit to realize that uh, they had to stand on two tiles beside each other that, when added together, equaled nine. Everything in this place is really based around cats or the number nine. Nine lives of Pandora being one of the big things. Uh, Lomar of the nine. Uh, there are nine days in the Ormanian uh, calendar, a week, if you will. So nine is a big number for Oromon. It's forefront. It's how they, part of their worship of their goddess. So in this situation, they had to find it. So when they stood on two tiles beside each other, that's what nine, the next row of arrows stopped. And then, if they got back off of it, the arrows came back again. So there was a delay, though. That's important. There was a delay before the arrows came back. So what they had to do is two of them had to do this. When you stepped on the first tiles, the arrows on the next row stopped. Somebody had to step on those two. Then, somebody had to step... That person had to hop across to two, somehow, before the arrows started shooting on that one. So the nines were close enough that you could hopscotch this. Um, and they decided that the two that were going to do it were going to be Dandy and Artemis. 
Uh, Darsh and Mercy weighed down in their armor while they're still dexterous. Darsh, the concern was that his feet were too big. Because they did test and find that if you stood on more than two tiles in a row, the arrows just came back up. Had to be exactly two tiles that equaled nine, and they had to be side by side. So Artemis and Dandy, on opposite sides of the room, are basically hopscotching each thing, saying, gear next, the me next, and they had to find the nine and be, jump two foot and land two foot kind of thing. And then the delay would happen. So they had to get all the way. Once they got all the way to the other side, there was a lever they could pull that just turned off the arrows. They could just walk back once they had the cat thing. Uh, but it took a little while for them to figure out the math combination that everything equaled up to the number nine. All right, that was room. Oh, and for the record, because I, I don't think I showed you guys the picture. I didn't because I had them circled, but... Basically, this is what the room looked like. I provided them this piece of paper, but there were no circles on it. They're the ones that did the circling. By the time they got to this room, they'd been through a few, so it didn't take super long to figure out the nine thing, but there were some rolls and such to get across some of this um, at times. So that was room three. Now we move, they again, get the cat out, I'll go back, pop it in, open another door. Room four is a larger room. In this room, nine different cat statues. Large cat statues. Uh, relatively uh, human height. Again, much like the, the ones they're picking up. It's thin and tall. So it's kind of like, like that. Um, there are nine different cat statues around the room. They can walk around the room. There's no holes in the floor or acid. This room they can walk around. Uh, there are multiple two-sided mirrors throughout the room. Um, the mirrors are not movable. But the, there are mirrors around the room that are on all different weird angles and, and spots. But both sides of, of the, the thing is mirrors on both sides. So, statue number one had, let's see. There's a lever on the wall. When they press that lever, light shoots out of the eyes of statue number one and then just hits the wall, whichever way it's facing. Um... So, of course, they went in the door closed. Um, yeah, I know. It was very scary. I'm talking about kitties right now. This whole place is based around kitties midnight. <laughs> so, uh, black kitties, too, just like you. So, uh, in this room, the object was they had to get... Uh, let's see. Uh, yes. So, basically, they had to get the light to bounce to each statue. Uh, they had to bounce it off a mirror to hit another statue. I see you, Bobby. That's kind of what they're looking for. So the statues spun. Um, and so they would basically were spinning statues. But sometimes if you spun a statue, another statue would spin as well. So it was finding the combination of statues to turn them the right way, to get the light to bounce all the way around the room to hit the final cat statue. And once that happened, at the base of that statue, it opened up, and there was the other little cat statue statue that they needed to, to open the next door. So again, the the circles with the arrows in them, those are the cat statues and the way that they need to face. I gave them the, a design picture just like this, but without the arrows in the circles. Those are just the statues, except for the number one, which pointed in a specific direction. So it's a matter of p p pointing 
it would bounce off of a mirror, bounce. The walls were also reflective. So it was, it was a whole puzzle of bouncing light to, so that all the statues were shining to the last statue. Uh, and then it opened up the dies. So they got that one. Then they go into room five. I'm assuming. Um, this is a very large room. There are four stone dioceses, one on each wall. On each dais is a platform. On each of those dais is a nine-pointed star carved on the wall. Uh, on three of the points of the star is a round hole. And the other six will have globes of different colors. Does this make sense? So imagine there's a nine-pointed star. At the end of each star are nine holes. And the bottom six have colored balls in them that you can pull out. Top three are just empty, like you could set one in there. Like gems or stones. Okay? Just covering that. Ask me if you need me to cover that again, and I will do it again. But that's what they're finding on each one. Um, let's see. The other six have globes of colors. The fourth larger dais um, at the end also has a carving and a small hole in the center. Oh, never mind. I'm going to correct that in a second. So the, the six stars were all of the same color. But each dais had a different color. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm on this dais here, and there's a nine-pointed star, and there's six red balls with three spaces. On that one has green balls with three spaces, and that one has whatever the color I chose was. And then the fourth one, again, just has a large dais, uh, has another big carving of a, a cat with a small hole in the center, in the, in the cat's mouth. So once there's a PC standing on each dais... Three on where the globes are, and the fourth one on the main one. The floor disappears. All except for on the diocese. The floor they were standing on collapses and falls, and just falls and falls and falls and falls. Bottomless pit. Uh, let's see. No, not bottomless pit. I'm sorry. It opened up to a pit. Whoa, buddy. Hang on. Hang on, Chubby. Listen, I, I love you, and I'm glad you want to cuddle with me. But we're fighting some monsters right now, okay? Uh, sorry. Uh, they, uh, so they got to this room, and it was uh, the floor drops out, and it was acid. I'm sorry, the next one. I like acid in this one. I use a lot of acid. There's reasons later on in the story. There's acid here. So on the hole in the main dais, a glass ball appears. It kind of pops out of the mouth. And the person on that dais pulls it out. Um, and oh, I used the three prime colors on these, by the way. So when it pops out... They then have this ball. They have to throw it to the person who has that color on their dais. Right? That person has to catch it. If they do not catch it, either it goes in the lava or it shatters. They have to start again. Not all over again, but they have to get three of each color in there. They have to roll to throw and have to roll to catch. It's far enough apart that it's not just tossing. It's They have to literally lob it and somebody has to catch it. Um, so if they place it inside of the, uh, the hole of the correct color, um, then that ball will start to glow as do all the ones underneath. It's glowing when you put it in. So it was basically a dexterous throwing the puzzle across. Um, a second, uh, let me see. Yes. And there was a combination where they're primary colors, and you had of the three balls you had to put them in, and the colors would make the colors that match them on, like they didn't match. I don't remember the specifics here, but it was kind of thing where you had to take the three primary, you had to take colors, and fill up the slots to make 
colors merge and, and so on. I apologize. I don't have the actual handout here again, so it doesn't say the specific colors. But the whole point is that they had to get all of them filled with the right color combinations to match the colors to make the stars light up. Once they did, um, things would slide out from each of them meeting in the middle so they could get to each other, and they had the little statue, and they could leave. Um, that room. I'll pull that back a little bit. The, the big dice is down at the bottom. Room six. Room six was just me screwing with them. I'm not going to lie. It's a smaller room, and in the center on the ground is a nine-square grid. Eight of the grid are tiles that can slide within the grid, but they cannot be picked up. The ninth is empty, allowing... A one slot to slide into it. Uh, each tile has a handle in its center, and it appears that the tiles make the picture of Pandora. If you've ever seen that old kid's toy thing, it's like a plastic thing with a frame. You can move one tile and one tile and one tile and one tile. They had to play that. They had, they had to make the thing. It took about 30 minutes for them to figure it out together. Uh, well, I just got to sat back and watch. There were no repercussions. They just were locked in the room until they got it fixed. Uh, a very basic puzzle type kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with in your adventure putting in puzzles of stuff that you've heard of before. You know, work them in somehow. Just saying, if you ever DM things, do it. Uh, so they finally got that done again. Once they got all of them locked into the right place, little door opens in the wall, they get their cat statue and they leave. Room six. Now we step into room seven. Ooh. I should ask if I'm still on. Half the people just disappeared. <laughs> Am I? Yep, so I'm streaming. Okay. Um, now we go into room seven. This is the largest room with an incredibly high ceiling. Multiple different heights, diocese throughout the room. Uh, colored energy fields block off most of the room. There will be a square with footprints in front of a... Uh, a table that's about stomach high for the average human. Once someone steps in their field, uh, once they step in, in a spot, in the footstep spot, a color field will start around them, and the game begins. Uh, each one will have a different colored bracelet that will start appearing on their arm that glows, that matches the color they're standing on. Uh, the other ones are unable to move. No, okay. Uh, that's, that's the three people who stood in there. The fourth person is standing at the table, and inside of that, a set of dice appear. This was actually a large... And, and so they had to move through this large room, working their way up this dais to try to get to the top. It was actually just a giant... It took them a while to figure this out. It was a giant room uh, game of uh, snakes and ladders. And they had to... The person rolling was trying to get somebody up to the top. So it was more of a... Just a survival figured out. And uh, if they do fall into a chute there is the chance that they could slide into hot boiling tar. So they had to try to save themselves. So instead of just sliding down to somewhere else, if they hit a snake spot, it was actually a trap that could hurt or kill them. Once they make it to the very, very end, uh, the whole thing, because it, like, it was like layers of steps, flattens and everybody just slides down to the beginning and they could leave. Somebody, a friend of mine had asked me if I could work a board game into this when I was talking to them. So I said, okay, I'll see if I can figure a couple style board games in here to make it work. And kind of the thoughts of this is, this is all 
The emperor didn't create this, and I need to state that. He did not create this himself. It was created out of his will for it to exist. So out of his own dreams and memories are how these things were created. So my storyline was... Uh, the Nightmare Circlet pulled things from his own knowledge, obviously, his devotion to Pandora being forefront, but it also took things from his own lives, like Snakes and Ladders, games, things he might have played as a child, things that he made it into some type of puzzle that, in his mind, he could figure out, because these are things he's won at at some point, but that he was better than others. It was kind of the concept behind this section of the dungeon, this whole dungeon was him. Things he know he could do, to, he's protecting himself with something that he feels only he could get through. And again, that's his subconscious doing that. He's not saying, I choose this puzzle. He's not creating the puzzles. The Nightmare Circle is doing that for him. So they make it into, that was room seven, right? Yes. And there's a giant chute and ladders. Room eight. Large rectangular room. On the north wall are two clocks. On the south wall are two clocks. And on the east wall, there are four smaller clocks. The floor is tiled and warm. <laughs> Between the four small clocks is a lever. Once pulled, the four small will move to specific times. The tiles will slowly lower one at a time, revealing lava. Because I like lava and acid. Um, the four larger clocks need to be set to match the smaller clocks. You need to do this three times within a specific time limit or everything resets. If you succeed, the tiles ride back up and uh, underneath the small clocks, the door opens with the cats. So it, it was a one person's doing this and having to yell out the clocks while people on the other were having to run around on these hot things lowering into lava, jumping and hopping from... Because then we're all going down at the same speed. Just imagine a whole bunch of squares lowering at different speeds and lava flowing out some of them. Uh, and they're having to run around the room trying to set these clocks, and they had to figure out which clock was which. You know, that was part of the, the other. So just a, as a look on the room. So the obviously those three symbols are the clocks. The one on this end is where the uh, small clocks were. Those were the big clocks. There's four here, two here, two here. They had to figure out which ones matched which, and it wasn't always the same each iteration. Because they pull the lever, it does that. They have a certain amount of time. If they get them all right, they all spin to another set. They have to do it again. They have to figure out which is which. And there was a color coding involved. And again, nines were in there. Uh, so it was a matter of figuring out which one was which. Uh, but they did do that one. And then uh, that one, uh, they actually did that one pretty quickly. That one, that one wasn't too bad at all. Then they get to room nine. There's room nine. Showing it to you now. Coming in from the top. It's a very large room. In the center is the cat idol with a magical shield around it. There are four dioceses on each one with crystal balls. When they go and they stand, each person has to stand at one with the big crystal ball on it. Um, let's see. Again, I used acid again. Love acid in this room. So, basically, the shield around the cat will blink a color. And then whoever has that corresponding color has to press it. And then it'll blink two colors. And <laughs> they have to press it. This was a huge game of Simon Says. And every time they got it wrong, uh, the, all the, the acid starts. Because this is all acid in here. starts coming up. These are walkways above the acid. The acid starts to level. So it was a big game of Simon Says. And so I would yell out a color... And then they would have to yell out the name of the person. So, say, for example, Darsh was on blue. Uh, and I say, blue. 
Darsh goes, Darsh. Okay, I say, blue, red. Darsh, and then Dandy has to say Dandy. So they had to know their color and keep paying attention to this, but it was quick. There wasn't time to write it down. Um, and if they failed, they had to start all over again. So, uh, again, blue, red, green, yellow, red, yellow, blue, red, green. So there's a, and of course, they had to do it nine times. There were nine levels, uh, and they, they got to get that done. So that was the puzzle room. Uh, I don't, I don't know how exciting that was because I lost half of my audience during that, but I enjoyed making the puzzles. From what I remember, they enjoyed most of them. A couple really frustrated them, but, uh, most of them, they really liked the music one. They both got a kick out of the music one. Um, so, um, yes. So then they get down, they take the last cat idol out and place it in. Um, the large door with the symbol of Pandora opens. And they're able to go up the next set of stairs. <clears throat> so, um, they walk upstairs. You find yourself standing in the streets of Oromon. The purple sky moves unsettingly above. They finally made it to the city on the top. Darsh, Darsh and Mercy recognize the arena in the distance and the large central chapel towers over the city. Um, so the city itself is populated with the citizens of Oromon. Uh, most of them appear to be moving about in a daze or a slumber. They're not aware of their surroundings, and they do not realize the PCs are there. Uh, they cannot physically touch them anywhere. They have to then determine where are they going to go for the emperor. Uh, and they immediately say, we're going to go to the main tower in the middle where the emperor lived, because that's probably where he was, and they were correct. Um, so, let's see here. They get to... So they, they climb the tower to get to or they get to go, climb the, through the city or walk through the city to get to the main tower. Um, so here's, <clears throat> here's where the kicker came in. This entire time that they've been doing this, I've been counting. And that sounds... I have to explain to you how hard this was for me to do this. I had a timer. And I would set the timer. And when the timer ended, I would put a tally. Then I would set the timer again, and I would do a tally. And the timer was always running through several sessions of D&D. &D. I ended it at the end of a session and restarted again at the beginning of the next. But I was timing it because what I was recording was the day-night cycles of how long they've been in here. They don't go to sleep. They never get tired. There is This is one long day for them, but seven days is going on in the, in the real, real world out there. So it still feels like seven days to them. Don't get me wrong. They're just not feeling the tired of needing to sleep. But they are also not getting to refill their uh, spells and stuff, which is really just Artemis, which, you know, by this point, they've used a good chunk of her heals. So the reason I did that is what they find when they get here is going to depend on whether they arrive during the day or during the night in the real world. So that's what I've been keeping track of. Is it day? Is it night? Is it day? Is it night? Um, ba, 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 ba. So, um, all right. So if they arrived during the day, and they can make it up to Marcus's, uh, Marcus is is the emperor. If they can make it up to Marcus's throne room, um, they arrive during the day. 
in the real world, uh, they have to fight Marcus. During their day, which is, I'm sorry, it's reversed. Daytime here is night there, if that makes sense, right? Because when you're sleeping, you're living your day here. So if they arrive daytime here, then it's night there. Marcus is, is in the dream world. They're, they're going to find him there wearing the circlet. Um, oh, you're welcome, Ashley. <laughs> Ashley says, I was literally going to ask about spells and if they had to rest, but you beat me to it. Yes, they have. for them it's one long day. Uh, but they do not feel tired or exhausted. They may feel like winded from all the physical jumping around and such, but they're not tired from like lack of sleep. That the desire to sleep does not exist here. But if it is nighttime in the real world when they arrive, then Marcus is in the dream world in the circlet. He can't attack them, doesn't mean he can't do other stuff. And he has to fight him for the circlet. If they arrive during the night here, it's the day there. He's asleep. If they can find him, they can try to steal the circlet. These are the choices that they had. Because he's not he could still be woken. Things that they do here is it's trapped. If they if he, they do a poor job of stealing it, it could basically wake him here, which will cause him to fall asleep wherever he's at. Which in itself is dangerous when you think about it. You're walking up some stairs. Uh, but that would pull him into the dreamscape as well. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's see. He'll, he'll be sleeping in his chambers. So they have to arrive. So they, this is basically what they had to do. Um, <laughs> sometimes I forget how much of a goober is. I put, uh, if, they, if they end up fighting Marcus, please remember, he will be very badass. That's the note I wrote for myself. To remind myself that the badass bad guy is going to be badass. I don't know why I do these things. I remind myself of stuff occasionally in my own notes. Um, so when they arrive at this tower... They know that he lives at the top of it. And there's dungeons down in the bottom. And so they have to decide what they want to do. Now their, their thoughts and what they've thought ahead of time. And they get here. They're like, there are stairs going up and stairs going down. The fact that there are stairs going down makes them want to go down. They're like, do we split up? Is he down? Is he up? Like they think he's up, but he could be down. They're not sure. He could be getting up and getting down with his bad self. I don't know. So they decide that they're going to go down first. Um, let's see here. Okay, so they go down. They decide to go down first because they think he's at the top, but they're looking for something else, and they're successful. When they reach it down into the dungeons, they find the links. Remember, I said that one of the things they had to do here was to try to destroy the links that is letting him do all of this. Um. In this room, there are three altars in a central chamber. On them are Darsh, Mercy, and Tobias, horribly tortured and in pain. Missing skin, they've been flayed at points, burns, cuts, just constantly screaming. And they're being guarded by four Oromanian elites, which appear a little bit larger than normal ones. Um, the links are symbolic if you will. The uh, Darsh and Mercy's links are them themselves. The Tobias link, using what he knows of Tobias and his knowledge, is how he's also able to pull in Dandy and how he's able to pull in um, Artemis it's through that knowledge, through what he learned through Tobias, because Tobias was tortured, and I don't care how strong you are, after enough time, you will find things out, especially when you're using magic spells too, right? So, there was that. Um... 
and see. So they end up having to fight them. Uh, then they have to they have to fight the elites. Uh, so the elites was elites were a pretty hard fight. I made these elites obvious elites much stronger than normal because they're not real elites. They're creations of the nightmare circlet. Uh, and Nightmare Circlet is creating these as willed by its master to be a strong defense of these links. Um, and so there are... It was a pretty strong fight. I, 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 there was some damage dealt, but they were successful. Um, and the, they have to figure out how to destroy the links. Well, the links are them. The only thing that they can figure to do is they literally have to kill the links. They have to sever that tie. They have to put these figures out of their, out of their misery. Um... And the worst part is, is Darsh and Mercy looking at this are seeing for very likely what they genuinely went through. Because remember, they don't have a lot of memory of that. I mean, part of that was washed away. Well, they got a little bit of that from uh, uh, Chara's spell. They don't remember all of that. That's there partially to protect them. But when they're seeing just the mangled forms and tortured in front of them, they're, they, they're looking at that. And for Darsh and Mercy, that's a slap across the face. Like, that was us. This is his link he's using from his own memory to, to hold us to this. He knows this was us. And that is uh, a harsh awakening for them. So with not, And then, of course, there's Tobias as well. With nothing else to do, they basically have to kill them and slit their throat, that kind of thing. It was, it was gross. They had to do it. They didn't want to, but there was no healing them. They have to sever that link. And the only way to do that is to kill the thing that links them. And so they had kill all three of them, which it, in essence also releases them from their pain, if you think about it. And it actually makes them feel a little bit better about it as well, because that link is always active right now. He's using the circlet for that. So because of that link, even though they're not constantly thinking about it, they'll have memories of that flash their mind. You know, it doesn't matter. You have a bad day. You're going to remember something bad that happens. But this is causing it to pop up in their minds a lot more often, and they weren't really realizing it. Uh, what little they did remember. But it took a while, and they managed to beat the four. And once that is done, they were able to sever the links. So if nothing else, if they are not able to defeat Marcus, he will not be able to pull them in any longer. Doesn't mean he can't pull in somebody else. But it means that they can't pull in them any longer. That link has been broken. And once that brink is, link is broken, he cannot rebuild it. So at this point, they decide it's time to go up. And they make their way upstairs to the main chamber of the emperor, who is sitting there on his throne. And when they first walk in, he's a little, you can tell he's a little surprised to see them. That's not who he expected to walk through. And then he gets a big smile on his face. And he's like, you four, you never cease to amaze me. I would have never dreamed, he snickers at his own pun, you would have found a way to come in here after me. Bravo. He does that fake clap that villains do, which is really cheesy. <laughs> Just, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a piddle by that. Um... And, he, he, and and you, they can see the circlet around his head. They can see it in the other dreams as well. Um, and he's like, you think you're here to kill me, or you think you're here to take this. You think you can succeed. I've been living in this world every night for like a year, or however long it is, for like a long, he says a long period of time. I know what it's like in here. I know how to control it. The circlet is giving me the control of the whole area. And you're just pawns in my game. You've only come to your deaths. And 
here, I can make you tell me what I need. You've basically given me what I need. So let's do, he's like, so now I shall take it. And he draws his sword and he comes forward. His shield appears in his hand. He's a sword and shield wielder, um, usually. He's very multi-skilled. But he, sword and shield first, they just kind of appear in his hand because he's in, it's his dream, right? Because that's it. They're in his section of the dream right now. This whole Oromon as it exists is his creation. <clears throat> like I said, it's based off his memories and such. <clears throat> and they enter into combat. So they're fighting Marcus. And I have to clarify that the four of them are not strong enough to beat Marcus in a fight. Of everything they've ever fought and they've ever dealt with, the four of them are not strong enough to beat Marcus in a fight. In just straight on combat. With his powers as a high cleric, he's basically a paladin of Pandora. A dark paladin. The dude's got serious cheese whiz. Um, so this fight immediately starts going bad for them. You know? And he starts laying down a whooping. He really does. Um, and as he's fighting them, they find that they're being pushed backwards. Like, they try to surround him. I mean, that's their best bet at this point. Except for Artemis, who's in the back trying to cast spells and keep everybody healed. Um, but he's just wailing in on people. Darsh and Mercy. Dandy's trying to get behind him. And even though she's successful, every time she tries to make a back attack, he spins and is right on her kind of thing. So he, this is the first time they really see him in combat. And they did not know how... Like, level-wise, he's above them. He is very powerful. And so they're fighting at this. And as they're fighting, the first one to fall is Mercy. And he hits her. Like, they're fighting and stuff. They're battling, blah, 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 blah. And as he hits her one last time, her weapon and her shield and her armor breaks. And she falls to the ground, weak. Barely able to strong. She's not naked. Huh? she got basic clothes on. But all the stuff that, you know, she would use to fight and attack just is gone. All of her magic item, her weapons, her rings, she's just there in just like regular clothing. And she's so weak, she's on her knees, she can't really stand. And he just laughs. And, he la and everybody else stops for a second because they're like, what? And Artemis is like about to cast a spell. And he just laughs and he goes, you don't have what I need. And then he turns and he starts facing the other three. What he's finally done is break down her enough to see that she doesn't have what he's looking for. And they all realize this. Which means in this fight, he's not just fighting to kill them. He's fighting to take what he wanted the whole time. This, Because then once he has that, he can kill them here and they're dead forever. He's wiped out all of his big enemies over there. She's helpless to do anything about it at this point. The fight continues. Now, Artemis is trying to stay behind. Now Darsh and Dandy are trying to keep Artemis behind him. Right? Because Artemis, now without Mercy there to help, there's some problems. His shield disappears and in its, in its stead is another sword. Now he's dual wielding. And he's coming at them like that. Suddenly he's ambidextrous. Is he really ambidextrous? Who knows, but in his dream he is. And he comes out, even though they're starting to get physically tired from the fight, Artemis has been tossing some heels, 
what he's done to Mercy seems to have made him stronger. He's more powerful and invigorated there. And he starts coming in. Dandy takes a big cut. Big slice and she falls backwards. Artemis rushes in to pull her back out to try healing her. Because she's trying... Because you at this point, Dandy t- has taken a, quite a bit of damage. And as I've mentioned before in my version of Dandy, um, you can throw healing spells, but they don't do as much healing. If you do actual physical heat laying on hands, it does the, it ha- you get to do the full roll. So you get a chance of healing more. She pull, She's strong enough to pull Dandy out of the way and she's trying to cast a heal on her. Hoping Darsh can hold the line. Because Dandy's quick and with her hoopack and her blades as well. She can get in there and do some melee when she needs to. But now while this is going on, Darsh is facing Marcus alone. And Darsh, at this point, his shield has been knocked free. And he's drawn his other sword. And they're just basically both dual wielding. Um, and it's an impressive fight. Darsh starts to even turn a little bit on it. It's, he starts to take it back. He scored like 220s. In that battle, I remember. Like, two natural 20s in a row. And he did, like, double damage and triple damage. He rolled on the critical hit dice. And he did, like, a huge chunk of damage in one round kind of thing. Or two back-to-back rounds. Which really knocked Marcus back. It sent him back a, a, a good pause and bought them some time. They managed to get Dandy. She healed up some. She's still pretty hurt. Artemis is now casting a second heal. It's now the second round. Marcus has taken a hit back, and Darsh tries to use this to his advantage to charge in. Marcus slightly fainted. Marcus uses this as an attack, and they get into this harsh back forth again, where they're like super, super close. And Marcus, while smaller, seems just as physically strong, strong as Darsh is. In the dream, he's just as powerful, if not more so. And again, he starts beating Darsh back. And Darsh sees an opening and takes it, and he cuts him. He cuts him good. But in that same moment, Marcus brings his blade down on Darsh's shoulder. But it doesn't cut him. It doesn't slice his head off like you'd expect. Instead, Darsh is tossed backwards. And as he does, his armor, shields, weapon, everything that makes him the warrior is gone. Shatters and disappears. And Darsh falls backwards on his back and he's trying to stand up, but he's so weak he can't, he can, he can't even get into a sitting position. And Marcus just laughs and says, you don't have what I'm looking for. And he just turns, and now he's looking at Artemis, and he's looking at Dandy. Dandy's been healed at this point, but Dandy, there's no way in the world she's going to be able to take Marcus one-on-one. It's just, they know this. But she can't just leave Mercy and, and Darce laying there defenseless. If he kills them, they're dead forever. Dandy, she's been fighting with the back. Dandy drops it and she pulls her daggers out. And Dandy gets very calm. And she gets very serious. And she's kind of looking at her daggers. She's looking at him for a minute. And she just kind of like nods her head. And this is what her, this is what her friends see. Dandy looks at that and looks at it. And she kind of nods her head like she's accepting what's about to happen. And she goes in anyways. And she just charges forward and starts throwing her knives. She's got her knives out. She's Again, she's got knives strapped across her. She's been collecting these. Dagger of flame. Dagger of poison. She's got all these silver daggers. And she's throwing knife after knife. And he's 
blocking them and knocking them back, but he can't melee her. She's just ranging him with all these daggers as quickly as he can, and almost seems like she's not even running out of them. Not only does she have a lot of daggers, it appears she's pulling out more daggers than she should have. And she's pulling out, and she's just constantly... And he's beating him back, and he's not taking any damage, but he seems a bit frustrated by this. Because he wants to get in there, and he wants to break her, and either find out if she knows, and if not, get her out of the way, so he can take Artemis, who at that point then has to be the one who knows what he's looking for. Has to have what he wants. Danny's throwing his eyes, and he's frustrated, and he starts banging away, and then he decides... To let it get, let him hit, and the daggers start hitting him, and sure enough, they're causing him damage. But he keeps walking, and Dandy's aim is good, and she's still coming towards him as well. She's whipping, oh, somebody's cooking something. <laughs> somebody's whipping daggers as well, and she fully believes she's going to die. And she doesn't make jokes. She doesn't make her laugh. Dandy is in that moment almost the ser most serious she's ever been in her life. She almost feels like a different person. She's like. Okay, this is what I'm here for. I'm going to save my friends. I'm going to do what, ha what I have to. I'm, if I don't succeed, so be it. But I'm going to do everything I got. And with her last two daggers, she charges in. And she starts melee fighting him, daggers against his swords. And starts holding her own a little bit. And he's surprised by this. He finds himself immediately put on the defensive. And when he takes back the offensive, she takes it back again. Dandy somehow is fighting him back. But as we all know, eventually, he's going to wear her down. He's stronger, and this is his dream. Artemis is trying to cast spells of blessing on her, healing whatever wounds she takes with the last few healing. She has her wand, she has a wand of magic missile. She's popping some of those at him, barely causing enough damage for him to even worry about it. Shrugs it off. She doesn't miss with him. She's got a little wand of magic missile she pops off in these fights when she runs out of things to do. She can't run in with her bonk stick. She's not going to be able to do much with her staff of caring. And her whip isn't going to do much against this guy. But she doesn't know what else she should do. So she's about out of spells. She decides to go in with her staff and try to help Dandy. And so the two worst fighters are now rushing in. He's in there. And this actually hurts Dandy. Because now he has another target and Dandy finds herself trying to defend Artemis. It was a choice Artemis made. She came into the fight. Now while this is going on, Mercy is still on her knees. And she's trying to stand and she keeps falling back down. She's too weak. She just can't. She's too weak to stand. And she can barely lift her head enough to see Darsh on his back like a turtle. He's just like... Like he's trying to roll over. He doesn't have the strength to stand. He's laying on his back. Almost like his weight is being used against him. They feel like all their energy has been drained. All of her weapons are gone. All of her armor is gone. She's got nothing. The fight's raging in front of her and she can't do anything about it. And about that time, on her finger, she looks down and she sees a glowing light. Very faint at first. And as she looks at it, it starts to take shape in lines. And it forms a blue rune. She doesn't know what the rune means. She doesn't know anything about runes. Some type of language she's never seen or heard of before. Is it a letter? Is it a symbol? It's not a god thing that she's ever seen. What is this blue symbol that's showing up on her ring finger? And she's looking at it and she can feel that in her hand it feels a little bit stronger. And she's looking at that finger and she's looking at that and she knows what finger that's on. And she wills her morning star to her hand. 
Even though the ring's not there, this that rune is. And the Morning Star appears in her hand. She doesn't have her armor on. She has none of her shield, none of her weapons. But what she does have is her strength back. And she takes that Morning Star and she rushes in and she brings it down because he's, he's not paying attention and attacks him with it. He barely manages to block the blow. Completely blown away by this. But while he's blocking that blow, Dandy stabs him in the chest. And it was a good hit. He staggers back a bit. Well, now Dandy's in there with her daggers just stabbing. Mercy's swinging with this Morningstar with the strength she should not have. And it's hitting his weapon and it's literally beating him back. And Artemis is in there hitting with her bonk stick. We'll say it was helping. <laughs> it wasn't really helping that much. But hitting there with her with her staff and doing stuff. And he's just trying to fight. And for the first time in this whole fight, they literally have the upper hand. Um, it was at this time that I kid you not, Mercy rolled a natural 20. Swear to you, she rolled a natural 20. I brought to her the critical hit dice. And she rolled death. Now, very often... In boss fights, I start the fight by saying, death doesn't work. Neither does knock unconscious. These are too powerful you to kill. Just doesn't work that way. You can stun, sever a limb, possible, if it's got limbs, depending on what you're fighting. Death, a lot of times, doesn't work. So they looked a little bummed out when they rolled death. They're like, oh, that would have been great. And she reached to roll again, and I'm like, no, you're good. And she's like, what? I'm like... Dandy stabs him, and as he goes to block that, Mercy brings it down on his head and can feel his skull crushing under the weight of the Morning Star. Cracks it. And he falls to the ground, and his head is dented and misshapen. Blood coming out of ears and his nose, but he's not dead. He's still powerful as all hell. But he stumbles backward and, and falls to his knee for a minute. And as he, he goes to stand back up, Dandy runs in, and snatches the circlet off his head. I thought she was going to attack him. She goes, I run in. I'm like, you run in. I'm waiting for her to say, I stab him in the eyeball or slit his throat. Finally kill this bastard. And she goes, can I grab it off his head? I'm like, Dandy, you're, you're a thief, dude. You've got a 90% chance to successfully pickpocket. <laughs> if you want to roll it, I'll say you got a negative 10 because he's the dream world. If you can roll 80% or above, you can snatch it. Because she's just that skilled in that ability. And of course she rolls and she's successful. And she snatches it off his head. And the second that it does, the blood stuff starts flowing more of his face. And he just screams these obscenities, which is almost unintelligible. And you can see he starts doing something with his hand and he starts to fade out. He's bringing, he brings himself back out of the dreamscape. Because if you die in the dreamscape, you die forever. Without the circlet, he was now in the same position they were. And he had to let go of the spell that he used, to, part of that, to keep it going and so on and so forth. He had to let go of that spell, which means he fades out. And I'm not going to lie, he's going to have a headache. His head's not really squished. That's the dream world. But they defeated him. They have the, Dandy has the circlet in her hand. She looks at it for a second. She looks over at Mercy, tosses at her feet, and Mercy just brings that Morning Star down and smashes it in, into powder, 
Sparkly powder. But powder nonetheless. Confetti. But they break that. And by breaking that here, even though he has it in the real world, he can't use it again. And he can't use it again. Now, does that mean he can give it to someone else? To use on someone else? Maybe. He still has the thing. Still a powerful magical artifact. And that doesn't mean that people they don't care and love about. But he's going to have to find a way to create a link with them, which is going to be a lot harder without Tobias, Mercy, and uh, Darsh's memories of their shared you know, torturing and all that stuff. With this defeat of Marcus, they realize they're safe. He can't get them anymore. That they can go home. They didn't die. <laughs> which is great. They successfully defeated him. But they know that as powerful as he was in the real world, should the day come they have to fight him in person with his minions and his army and his clerics and such, that's going to be some serious... They're not strong enough to beat him. They weren't strong enough to beat him in here other than for somehow that blue rune thing. Which, if you'll remember, a blue rune has popped up several times in these dreams, and each time they've managed to use that rune through some type of whatever to do some damage. To make the difference. So you have to wonder which one of them has that ability and doesn't realize it. I know, Bubby, it's scary. So, with that, we're going to end up running about 15 minutes late tonight, maybe 20 at the most. I hope that doesn't bother too many people. But uh, run a little bit late because we're at basically near the end of this, right? At this point, they're done. We can go home. We've destroyed the circuit. We've destroyed the links. All we have to do is picture the grove where the gate is and we can go back through it and go back home. They're very excited, and they want to get the hell out of Oramon. They do not waste time taking each other's hands. They don't really need to at this point. They all know where they're going. In this situation, they don't need Darsh and Mercy to pull them. But they took hands anyways. And they all picture the portal. Where they can finally go back home and maybe get a real night's sleep. And they see themselves zooming past lands, familiar and unfamiliar, and then they see the portal, and they go right past it. And they feel themselves going faster and faster. The land around you is unfamiliar and seems to be going by at increasing speeds. The sky begins to grow dark, darker and darker until it turns black. The land around you is barren and broken as it finally begins to slow down. Finally, everything stops, and you find yourself standing before a great cliff. Uh, cliff, or like wall-like cliff. Uh, uh, massive, going up in the high, like the cliffs in Princess Bride. Massive cliffs, going up to the sky. In front of you is a great broken opening, leading into darkness. Enter, commands a great deep and powerful voice from inside. They look around for a moment. This voice did not sound like it was playing. They take a moment to see if they can picture the, the portal, the gate, but nothing happens. They're stuck there. There's no other choice but to go inside. You are surprised to find 
that while completely dark, you are able to see clearly. You move into a large stone chamber. On the opposite side is a massive throne carved from thousands of skulls. Sitting upon it is a large, dark creature that fills you all with fear, except Dandy, though even she squirms uncomfortably under its gaze. The creature tilts its large, horn head as if examining you. And he introduces himself and goes, I am the Nightmare Lord. Remember I said, the Dream Queen and the Nightmare Lord were the rulers of this land. He's very human-like, but has hooved feet and two large minotaur-like horns. He's almost completely black, except his eyes grow, glow red. He's very spooky, very scary guy. I'm very scared. He tells them that he's actually... And they're like... And he, like, he goes, congratulations. I must say, I'm quite proud of you all. Marcus' use of the nightmare circuit had angered him quite a bit. But he was powerless against it as it was a creation of his own. He says, you've defeated him here in my land, in my realm. But he's still perfectly fine back home. And I must tell you, he is quite, quite angry. He looks at them and says, I'm going to tell you now he has many, many plans for the land you call Merged Worlds. Terrible things for the people and those that live there. The kind of things that would give you nightmares. He gets a little sly smile. He goes, I, go, I know this because I am privy to the minds of all living beings. I can see the thoughts and minds of all men, even yours, standing before me now. While you sleep, your lives are in my hands. Obviously, the Dream Queen, too, but he's very proud of himself. He says, I've not brought you here to harm me. In fact, I wish you long, long lives. I wish no harm to come to you at all. He goes, I want you to live as long as possible. Your nightmares are much too sweet to let go of. Because it's the nightmares and dreams of others that gives him power. Killing you does not help him. I've brought you here to give you to make you an offer. Should the day come, for whatever reason, and the nightmare circlet comes into your hands in your world, bring it to me. Bring it back to me, where I can make sure it does not fall into mortal hands ever again. Do this, and I will give you great rewards. I will give you knowledge. I will give you something you will need very, very badly if you hope to survive what comes next. He sits back and he goes, but, you're, but you all must be overwhelmingly tired. 
It's been so long since you've had a good night's rest. Return to your homes now with my blessings. I'll be watching. And remember, bring it to me. And I will give you something you will want very badly. Sweet dreams. And he waves his hand. And they're like flung back. And unlike the normal train, like they're standing, they literally feel like they're flying in the air, spinning, spinning. And they all tumble to the ground. And here they are, still in the dreamscape. But now they're laying down in front of the portal. The realm gate. You're flung through the air by an unseen force. You land hard on a grassy surface. Looking up, you find yourselves laying before the realm gate. They're ready to get the hell out of here. They didn't even hesitate. Mercy's like, I pull out the key and I open it. <laughs> okay, you can do that. She goes, no, before anything else happens, I'm pulling out the key and I'm opening it and I'm going home. I'm like, okay. She does and she steps through. Once on the way through, as soon as they come through, they expect their feet to touch the ground, but they don't. In fact, they, they're kind of floating like in a, like a space shuttle, like the no gravity thing. They start to float through and they feel themselves being pulled towards the tower, quicker and quicker and quicker. And sure enough, all four of them are pulled into the tower and they're kind of you know, kind of standing around the bodies and they're standing down looking at their bodies. Now, there are candles on the altar, four of them. And Karina told them that should they be successful and return home, blowing out the candles will end the spell for them. There was a side effect that if somebody blew the candles out in the real world before they came back, they'd be dead forever. She didn't tell them that until this is all over. And they were very unhappy not to hear that situation. She's like, I was protecting it. You're fine. Who's going to get by me? Karina, the Black Wind. Um, but sure enough, there's four candles there. They all say goodbye to each other and say they're going to chat to each other soon because Darsh and Dandy are about to go tens of thousands, hundreds of miles away from them, right? Thousands of miles away from them. But they all kind of lean in and blow out the candles. And sure enough, as soon as they do, there's a pop. And everybody wakes up. Um, and they find themselves back in their own bodies. Darsh and Dandy wake up on his bed. And Dandy gets up and looks at him and just smiles and gives him a big hug. And everybody around him is looking at him. And he just kind of nods his head. And they're like, oh, thank goodness. It was successful. Darsh. I'm sorry, Darsh. Mercy and Artemis wake up and she and Karina smiles and goes, I see you made it back to us. And they, they're like, yeah. And the car goes, was it successful? And Mercy's like, yes. We managed to break the link and break the circlet. And then tells what happened with the Nightmare Lord, which even Karina's a little, gets a little concerned with that. It's like, you spoke with him. That's highly unusual. He's very picky with who he appears to. He must have something very important planned for you all. I guess it's good that I do hang out here for a little while. It seems interesting things are ahead of us. She does a little cackle and just walks out of the room. The car's like, the car turns and goes, I'm not going to lie to you, man. She creeps me out. <laughs> and Mercy and Artemis just laugh at how, how, how casual it is. The car just goes, I'm not going to lie. She creeps me out. <laughs> it's like, because he's a pre he's a powerful wizard. He's head of the tower. And he's like, man, that's weird stuff. And, I, and that's that's clearly how he came across. Because, you know, he's become relatively friendly with Mercy and Artemis. They're, you know, they're becoming allies. Because, yeah, I'm not going to lie, man. She creeps me out. <laughs> and, and Artemis, like, Mercy just gut laughs, right? Artemis like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm so proper. But 
they managed to go, and of course, at that point, Ulrich and uh, uh, Lucas are there. They're very happy to see their important people, and so on and so forth. And there you go. At this point, they are all exhausted. Even their friends who've been watching them, because it's been very stressful for them. They've turns out they've been gone five days. That's how long it took them to be in there for all that. And they're exhausted because they haven't slept in five days. And they feel like they haven't slept in five days. Once they came back to the waking world, it very quickly started to pile up there. For the first few minutes, they're okay. And then they just started dragging. They're literally falling asleep standing there. And it becomes almost a race to get them home to their beds so they can get some sleep. But they do. Ulrich and Lucas get them back home. Artemis takes them in or so to see her you know, kid and such and, and lays down the bed and Draven, Draven sits down and he's like, sleep as long as you like. I'll be here when you get up. And he just sits there kind of staring at the wall. Draven can do that. Draven can just sit still at the wall and think for days. <laughs> he's, he's, he has weird moments like that. They all get a rest. They sleep for almost a full day. Um, but word goes out to their allies and such that everything is okay. And while this has happened, they wake up, they spend a couple of days, and sure enough, the seventh day rolls by, no dream. Because they were concerned. They were waiting. They gave it an eighth day, no dream. So sure enough, over time, they never get pulled back in again. Severing the link means they can't be used by the circlet again. Now, at this point, there were several loose ends that we tied up of this adventure. There were several role-playing. We began with heavy role-playing, and we kind of ended with some role-playing. And there were several things that had to happen. The first thing, these are things that happened over the next couple of months. Uh, or, or even immediately, depending. Dandy gets introduced to Jorn because she never met Jorn, and the Chimera. She's yet to see the Chimera. She's very excited about this boat. Michael's there, of course, very relieved. He gets to meet. He finds out. She finds out she's going to be an aunt, because that's how she feels about Darcy's babies. Darcy's saying, you know, they might be your size when they come out. She goes, doesn't care. I'm going to hold them. I'm great at holding babies. <laughs> and if there's just a brief moment of Darcy's eyes like, oh my God. <laughs> like, like the worst, scariest thing he's ever heard, right? Um... Immediately, as it was already started before this, but now mages working with Serenity's army is full swing. And knowing that they have just right pissed off the Emperor, uh, they start pushing that. And all of their plans for building the uh, fort on the thing, all of that gets escalated. Mercy's like, I don't care how much it's cost, we've got to get this done. There's going to be problems. It turns out that Lucas comes to Artemis I'm not, I can't tell you how excited they were. Some of these things happen over the next few months. The role-playing moments that helped build out Serenity a little bit. And I can't tell you how happy some of these things made them. Because these things resulted in stuff that, while they're very knowledgeable about the world, sometimes they don't see the stuff right around them. Lucas comes to Artemis and asks for her to do him a favor. Lucas has never asked for a favor unless it was stay out of trouble, stay out of combat, don't get in a fight, don't leave without 50 million Templars around you. So she's shocked. She's like, yes. He goes, I have met someone that I have grown very fond of. And I, as I'm telling this, the girls that are playing characters are like, like, what? Where did this come from? Met someone that I'm fond of and I would like to have your blessing uh, to have a very unformal ceremony. And he's trying to word out. He's like, 
you want to marry somebody? And he's like, I would like it to be very low key. You know, just, just me and her, maybe you, you know, nothing big. Who is it? Lucas has a thing for Molly. She makes good pies. And she's been living here for a year or two now. Um, and over time, he and her built a small a, a relationship that Artemis never really noticed because these things happen. Much like she didn't notice the uh, relationship that she's made aware of around that same time. Not marriage, but made aware of. And that has Miasha. Has a relationship. It started into a uh, a dating, courting situation with Seamus. Because remember, he's a really tall dude, but she's even taller. Because she's like one of the tallest people here. She's almost, she's not Darsh tall, but she's close. She's from a very tall Amazonian kind of tribe of ladies. She's a very tall lady and muscular. Uh, but Seamus, to me, in, in my head, they don't look like them, but it's the same kind of relationship from that Harry Potter movie where Hagrid's the really big tall guy, but he likes the girl who's still a little bit taller. That's kind of the relationship they have. Because she's actually a couple years older than Seamus, too. Uh, but Seamus and uh, Miyasha have begun courting. Draven proposes and also asks to have a ceremony. Uh, they, over the next year, because again, this is all going to be happening over the next six months to a year. Nothing big is going to happen in that time because this is what's going to happen before the next adventure, which will be starting next week. We're just tying up some loose ends, and these are things we did uh, at the end of that session and uh, over one session of planning stuff. So some of this stuff, uh, planning a wedding for Lucan, we role-played some of that out and things. Um, Mercy's birthday was coming up, and importantly, this is the big one, the planning of Mercy's wedding. That's a big deal. There's no little can't-do-it-in-secret stuff for them. Artemis and Draven's, theirs is... I mean, it's known, but it's just a small private thing. But Mercy has... This is basically Ulrich stepping into a king-type kind of role, you know? But Mercy's still in charge. There's no illusions there. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of thing. The queen is getting married. So this is a, a relatively big thing that will begin uh, planning as well. Um, so many of those things are going to happen over the next year. Um, so they're planning for that. And we spent a whole episode planning the <clears throat> party and the wedding and all that stuff because they wanted to do that. Uh, we talked about the mage prep, talked about building out the temples. Um, an elven bard who's traveling the world came through. His name was Sebastian Woodshade. Um, he also has a key, and he's been traveling from portal to portal. And he came from Paxwell, where he heard of these guys in Serenity. He's like, that sounds like the place I want to be. And so he went to Serenity, and he spends a good chunk of time here. Um, very talented. He's a no, uh, an elven noble where he comes from. Um, very attractive uh, young elf. He's probably barely 800 years old. Um and he has an assistant named uh, a, a, a gnome scribe named uh, Nico Stubblefield. Or Nico, sorry, Nico Stubblefield. So Nico's his scribe. And they're going around the world gathering stories. Much like Kelvin and them are going around mapping the world, they're going around and learning the tales of the land. And he's learning them. And so he will perform very often, not for money, but for trade of stories, for trade of tales and songs. That's what they're going around chronicling. Um... And he spends some time there and uh, also is signed on to perform at the wedding. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. What do we got going on here? Um, 
This stuff is for next time. Okay, good. I was, uh, there's only one last little thing I'm going to mention. And this is why we had to take a pause last, uh, a week or so ago. A story reaches Mercy's air, ears of an issue in Willowind. Several children and young women had gone missing over a short several day period. There were signs that something large may have taken them. Mob of citizens packed up their weapons and decided they were going to deal with this weird mutant creature living in a hill not far from them because now he's in there stealing women and children. And they decided that they were going to be the angry mob that marches on Frank. You remember Frank? Frank from the previous story? Frank? He actually calls it Frank, but yeah. Uh, they were headed that way. They weren't. They were just an hour or so out of the village heading towards the thing when uh, they came across big footprints going into the, into the woods. Now, they don't know what Frank looks like. They're like, these big footprints. He must be hiding locally. Maybe we can save the girls. And, you know, young women and children. And so he goes... They go into the woods and they're trying to follow these children. And then they get set upon by two hill giants. Hill giants are giants, but they're also the smallest giants. Um, or were they hill giants? Let me check and make sure. Yes. Two giants attack. And they're fighting off the giants. And they're not having a good time with it. The giants are big. And these are all relatively good fighters and such. They're more huntsmen. They're not warriors by nature. Um, they manage to kind of take down one, but the other one takes out several of them, and it doesn't look like there's enough when... Uh, oh, no, here it was. They're fighting, the, they're fighting those when suddenly a massive axe goes swinging through the air, clear into the head of one of the giants, causing it to fall to the ground immediately. The second giant turns to see what that was, and here enough comes big-ass giant Frank comes in. He's already thrown his axe, and he just basically starts wrestling with the giant. And they're fighting. And there's a big cave there where they're hiding in. That's where they were trying to get the girls. And so they were fighting with the cave. And they go crawling in. And there's damage and hurt and screams and injuries and blah, 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 blah. And then after that, it goes quiet. And they're all like, do we go in? What happened? And in the middle later, Frank comes out holding a little girl. And several children and women are coming out with him. Gives the little girl to the father. The reason I tell you this is that Frank saved the women and children and the people. Well, other than a couple that died. But he, he's known as a hero there. Now, I told you that Willowind is a very, very religious town. And they believe that in this time of trouble, Frank was sent by the gods to aid them. Frank is now a hero and friend of the town. And welcome in Willowind, even though he looks repugnant to most people. Uh, they look at him at like he's literally a gift of the gods. And so they... He's, he doesn't live there, he still is, but they bring food and such and gifts and things and, and sometimes they'll visit with him and such. But he is considered a citizen of Willowind and woe be anyone who would try to lay a hand on their Frank. But that's how that one ended. So, didn't have as big of an epic ending, I thought, sadly. Uh, you know, storytelling. It was much bigger in the combat when they, when they actually, the, the relief on them finally fighting and defeating Marcus was a big deal to them. Um, uh, but the dungeon leading up to it, I was particularly proud of. I put, I put month, month and a half into creating this whole dungeon experience ahead of it. Cause I've been working on it. You know, I'm, I'm always weeks ahead on the story before we played. Um, but they managed to, uh, successfully do that. Um, but even though they successfully won and all these cool little things happened at the end, uh, Mercy is concerned because she knows that 
Now the emperor is going to be furious. And he also know, they also know that whatever he wants, Artemis or Dandy, one of the two of them knows it. Which is odd. One of them, too, have the information. And Serenity is most likely going to be the target of his wrath. And Mercy, at this point, is preparing for war. There's no when, she doesn't know how, but she knows sometime in the air she's going to have to face Oromon again. In the future, not the air. And so that's really where we're going to, we're going to be jumping through time in the, in the next adventure starting next week, which is kind of fitting uh, to be jumping into a, a very cool part, the next chapter of these characters' lives, now that the, uh, now that the uh, dreamscape is done. Now it's time to deal fully in reality and the repercussions of our actions. So, ran a little long today, 22 minutes. Apologize for that. Um, I had a little issue getting the last episode up on the uh, audios, uh, the iTunes and Spotify. For some reason it didn't load correctly. I thought it was up there already. I'm going to have to remove it and repost it. So I apologize that last week's episode's not up there. I will probably have them both up there on Sunday. Uh, that's my next day I have to actually devote. I may try to get it sooner, uh, but Sunday at the latest. Um, uh, and by then I'll have that episode and this one. I'll be able to get both up. So, uh, Thank you all for coming by and let me tell you my tale. Uh, we had a bit of a, an ending here today. But this ending isn't quite as much as an ending as a brief pause. This is really a part of a story that we're going to jump into. Um, so while it is the end of a chapter and people got their experience points, uh, this is going to run right into some future things uh, that I'm excited to get the ball rolling on. So thank you for coming by and let me tell my tale once again this week. Uh, whether you're watching this today or 10 years down the road, I appreciate you listening. If you're listening to this on iTunes and Spotify, I love you guys too. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you coming by. If you had a good time, whether you're watching this now or later, uh, click like, subscribe to the channel if you're new. If you're watching this on or listening to this on one of the audios, click like or subscribe or leave a rating, whatever is on that platform of your choice, I would appreciate it. Uh, as well as if you have any questions about characters, you have any questions about story, want me to go back over anything, be more uh, descriptive on things, you can always join my Discord channel. Go to onlydraven.com. That's my website. There's a button in the top uh, you can click on that'll bring you into my Discord. Open to everyone. There's a uh, conversation thread there specifically for Merge Worlds. Always happy to answer questions and D&D stuff in there. Um, or you can message me directly through the email down at the bottom of that page. You'll also find links to all my social medias. You'll find links to the Merge Worlds uh, mini characters I'm painting on, I'm, well, digitally painting, on Hero Forge. So if you'd like to see what a lot of these characters kind of look like, uh, that's a great place to go to look at those. Uh, but thank you all for coming. Special thank you as always to my members. I greatly appreciate uh, your continued support of all of this Filth, I keep throwing <laughs> videos and stories and streams. I appreciate it. Thank you very much to Terry for sending in the new mystery bag. And thank you to Jim and Smashley for the new D&D shot glass, which hopefully I will get to use in the near future. Um, I appreciate your uh, gifts and donations and memberships very, very much. Thank you very much for supporting the channel. And as always, extra special thank you to my moderators, who I think are going to Caesar me and take over the kingdom eventually. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Thank you all for coming. You guys have yourselves a wonderful day, and I will see you again next Thursday for a little bit more Merch Worlds. Talk to you later.